You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 590. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from the APG Mobile Studio. Today's show is recorded on the 19th of October, 2023. In today's episode, Delays cause a Singapore Airlines flight to land with minimal fuel. And a flight takes off outside London with three loose or missing windows. Also ahead, more news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 590 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news, or, well, not too old anyway, and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, still. And joining me today... From his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. He is a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Uh, lovely to be on yet another show. Um, we're facing Storm Babbitt here, so it's going to be wet for the next two weeks, and they're saying life-threatening amounts of rain up in Scotland. So if you're north of the border, the best of luck. Oh, my. Is that something that we sent your way uh, from yeah, the United it, States? Yeah, well, it's come uh. from your direction. So, I mean, Canada <laughs> wouldn't do a thing like that. It's got to come have from been. the States. Must have been from us. Sorry. Yeah. All right. And uh, you heard that yeehaw. That, of course, uh, from a place to stand and a place to grow. It's our <laughs> retired financier, aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and producer. It's Liz Piper. Here I am. I just am a U.S. wannabe, I guess, Jeff. I want to say yeehaw all the time. I know, and I was going to hit my little yeehaw sound effect in uh, here and uh, my on my stream deck, and it's like they're uh, n- nothing but a b- bunch of blank keys. <laughs> <laughs> what? We What's going technology. on here? I need uh, to reboot. <laughs> just before, just before I say goodbye, I have very, uh-huh. very yeah. disappointing yeah. news for you. My I am offended oh, no. email did not go through. I got a, a failure. Oh no! Oh, We're no. going to have to so fix that. It doesn't that, work obviously. anymore. <laughs> Okay, okay, well, I'll Have get on. Staff! No wonder Staff. we thought we were doing so well. No right. complaints, nothing. Cheers, Liz. <laughs> no, maybe we should just leave it like that <laughs> yeah, and just assume that we're idea. just not getting any. Just put our fingers in there. Okay, well, I think uh, Unity, I can hear you, Liz, on Unity. Yay. 
Oh, here we go. I found it. Yeehaw! All right. Oh, watch out, Liz. Getting dangerous with the uh, with the uh, stuff there. But uh, at least uh, she's uh, not cracking the whip. Ow! Oh, okay. Time to go. <laughs> All right. So you've got a uh, remote-controlled <laughs> whip now? Wow. Oh. Yeah. Well, this is better than this. Oh. Oh. Right? Too soon. <laughs> that sounds pretty All right. cool. Uh, it is. All uh, right. Let's uh, let's do some aviation news. What do you think? Yeah, go for it. Stand by for news. Well, speaking of that, we have some. Uh, this is from the Aviation Herald. Good old Simon. A Singapore Airlines Boeing 777-300 registration 9 Victor Sierra Whiskey Hotel performing flight 319 from London to Singapore, London Heathrow to Singapore, with 280 people on board, had departed London with 106,164 kilograms of fuel and was descending toward – why is that significant? We're going to find out. Uh, descending towards Singapore when Singapore Approach told the crew to expect runway 20 right for landing. Flight management computer indicated that they would land with 7,000 kilograms of fuel remaining, well above the 3,084 kilogram requirement of final reserve fuel. Four minutes later, Approach instructed the crew to enter a hold due to tailwind for runway 20 right. The weather radar on board the aircraft showed the airport was receiving heavy precipitation. Their alternate airports, except Batam, were also affected by the thunderstorm cell. Another five minutes later, ATC informed all crews on frequencies that the runways would be switched from 2-0 to 0-2. And, oh, remember we were talking about runways and stuff like that? Wasn't that an example of one of the, I think, Melbourne... Uh, elected not to call theirs two zero zero two for oh that's right yeah because purposes. of the possibility of confusion yeah well I guess Singapore thought <laughs> ah, <laughs> no problem here um, anyway uh, they were assigned runway two left the aircraft was subsequently vectored to two left however about twenty five minutes after the crew assigned runway two zero right wait after the crew was assigned runway two zero right. ATC informed the crew that all landings at Singapore were held off to assess the weather conditions. Two aircraft had gone around on approach to two left. There would be another five-minute delay. The 777-300 was instructed to enter a hold again. About 31 minutes after being assigned runway 20 right, the aircraft arrived in that hold. The crew informed ATC they would be able to complete just one turn in holding and then needed to divert. Uh, visibility on runway two left had further deteriorated. The crew therefore initiated coordination for a potential diversion to Batam in Indonesia. Upon completing the first hold, there was still no update on the weather situation. The crew indicated they could do another round, another um, uh, time uh, turn in the pattern. And uh, let's see, the distances to Singapore and Batam airfields being about the same from their holding point. After completing the second hold, the crew was vectored away from both Singapore and Batam. And the crew queried that uh, that vector and said, what's going on? 
and was told that Singapore was not able to accept approaches and Batam had not yet approved the diversion. The crew then requested to fly in orbit, which was approved. The captain became pilot flying, the first officer pilot monitoring. After completing the orbit, the crew decided to divert to Batam, assessing they would still be able to land with final reserve fuel remaining. ATC informed the crew that approval for their diversion to Batam was still pending. The crew told ATC they were down to minimum fuel now. The approval for the diversion was still pending. 51 minutes after being assigned runway 20 right, the crew declared Mayday fuel at about 13 nautical miles southeast of Batam Airport. While an approach to Batam's runway 22, uh, Batam informed the crew there was a tailwind of 14 gusting up to 30 knots on runway 22. Ooh, that's kind of a strong tailwind. The captain opted to discontinue the approach and position for runway 4 with the intention to perform an autoland on runway 4. The autopilot appeared to capture both localizer and glide slope. However, descending through about 700 feet, no autoland was enunciated. Both localizer and glide slope were showing a full-scale deflection. The autopilot was disconnected and a go-around initiated. 67 minutes after receiving information to land on Singapore's runway 20 right. Okay, so that was the initial one way earlier in this whole saga. Uh, the aircraft repositioned for another approach to Batam's runway 4. The crew informed ATC that they now needed to land on runway 4 successfully on the next attempt. When the aircraft broke through, through clouds, the aircraft was high on the approach. Captain increased the rate of descent, however, received a GPWS uh, excessive sink rate warning at 1,400 feet per minute rate of descent. The crew initiated another go-around at 212 feet above ground level. The crew informed ATC they would now perform a teardrop procedure to visually land on runway 22. The aircraft managed to touch down on runway 22 about 77 minutes, uh, so that'd be what, one hour and 17 minutes after being first assigned for runway 20 right at Singapore, and rolled out without further incident. Singapore's TSIB commented the aircraft touched down at Batam Airport at 9.19 in the morning, with fuel remaining significantly below the final uh, reserve fuel of 3,024 kilograms, never mentioning how many kilograms of fuel were actually remaining in the end. Uh, they just, re and this all happened, what did I say? No, uh, I didn't say. October 25th of 2022. So that would be just shy of a year ago. And the uh, TSIB uh, released their final report, concluding the probable cause of the low on final reserve fuel occurrence, uh, where the flight crew appeared to have been given preference to land at uh, Changi Airport. Did I get that right? Changi. Yep. Changi. Changi. Okay. Over diverting to Batam, where the weather was good. Okay. Uh, the flight crew offered to perform an additional hold and an orbit, despite informing uh, SAC that what's that say? Oh, Singapore Approach Control that they could only perform a single hold and would be down to minimum fuel. Okay. So they kind of reneged on that. The weather over Batam started to deteriorate shortly after the flight crew decided to divert. Flight crew did not realize that an auto land should not be formed on runway four uh, at Batam in accordance with the operator's procedures as information contained in the approach charts indicated that the heading for the final approach course of the localizer is 41 degrees, a one degree offset from the runway heading. 
The operator's Batam Airport briefing did not indicate that an autoland should not be performed on runway four, as the approach charts indicated or indicate that the localizer final course is offset. Uh, okay, so they didn't have that information that they weren't allowed to try to perform an autoland there. The appearance of the no autoland message on the PFD, primary flight display, startled the pilot flying who eventually decided to perform a go-around, even though the flight crew were able to sight the runway as they were descending past 1,190 feet above ground level. Uh, the appearance of the no autoland message coupled with a low fuel situation likely intensified the flight crew's workload as they did not establish communication with Nadim Tower and did not realize that no landing clearance was given for their first attempt to land on runway 4. Wow. Things were just falling apart there in the in the cockpit. Yeah. Big mess. That sounds um, like a big mess. The operator has indicated that there is no set policy or procedure for initiating a diversion and provides its flight crew with the, the discre discretion, the discretion, the discretion to initiate a diversion as required as they are in the best position to evaluate the dynamic factors of each individual flight. Okay. The operator's fuel policy is clear in the guidance to its flight crew that if the maximum delay or estimated approach time is known, the flight may continue to hold as long as landing at destination is assured and the fuel remaining at touchdown is not less than the final fuel reserve. However, the situation faced by the flight crew on the day of occurrence where information on the maximum delay or EAT was not available um, does not necessarily mean that a diversion should be initiated immediately. The decision to initiate a diversion within when an aerodrome is unable to accept arrivals is not always straightforward. Flight crew would have to balance the possibility of potentially holding a while longer and possibly landing with more than FRF requirement uh, at the scheduled arrival airport against the possibility of diverting earlier but landing below the FRF requirement at the diversion airport. In this occurrence, the flight crew appeared to have preferred to land at the scheduled arrival airport. I think everybody preferred that option. Uh, and they held off deciding to divert on the following decisions. Uh, so it goes into a, a lot more detail, this final report, which we'll have linked in our show notes. But essentially, um, uh, the, what, what do we say? The Funyuns, the Funyuns darn things, they, they were starting to line started up. to line up. Uh, and um, yeah, so um, Nick, what's your what's your initial take on this whole thing? Well, uh, my initial take is I wonder what the weather forecast uh, when they got uh, to their briefing room at Heathrow indicated uh, because they were planning to land with seven tons of fuel. Um, now, that's well above the final reserve, but, you know, that involves you in diversion fuel and holding fuel. And it's not a huge uh, excess of fuel. So I'm wondering uh, if they... The forecasts were accurate because, of course, when they got there, they had pretty bad conditions uh, at their destination and all their diversions except one. So I'm wondering if a little bit of extra fuel would have taken a lot of the pressure off them. And uh, I know a lot of companies um, are very keen for their crews to take the minimum uh, required legal fuel. Uh, they don't really want fuel being padded out, but I personally feel that on this occasion, looking at the weather they came into, I think that would have been a wise decision. By the by, when they eventually got there and were put into a hold, 
um, that they still had a reasonable handful of fuel uh, around. Um, I was uh, a little bit surprised that when they kind of made their decision that they were going to divert, they then went once more around the hole and through an orbit. I'm going, why do that? Um, because Second guessing. Yeah, all the time that uh, you're hoping the weather at your destination will improve, it's quite possible that the weather at your diversion will deteriorate, as happened. Um, when they first got to Batam, or however that's pronounced, they were given a, a pretty lousy runway direction initially. So I'm wondering if, uh, if they had all the correct ATIS information for that, because, you know, you'd look at it and go, oh, that's not the ideal runway. Let's ask for the other way. So we've got a, a nice headwind, not a tailwind. Um, having said that, they made an approach and then they went around. Now, I must admit, um, they, they decided to do an auto land. Fine. Uh, but we all know that the auto land requirements are that if you have visual with the runway, you don't have to worry about the auto land failing because you could see the damn runway, just carry on visually and land. Click, click, <laughs> go, click, click. I'm going, right. yeah, exactly. Take control of the airplane and don't worry about it. And I mean, I have to say, perhaps he thought uh, they've got an auto land. If, if I run into some bad viz on the approach, I can just carry on. But uh, so, but anyway, he didn't need to because he could see it apparently. Uh, but decided to go around, and I went. That was not the ideal decision, I don't think, because once you've got a nice piece of concrete in front of you, uh, and you're on a diversion, you just really want to get it on the ground. The fuel's getting low. Don't mess about. But regardless, they they went around, um, and then they made another attempt. And the aircraft was high on the approach. Now, the captain increased the rate of descent and got a GPWS excessive sink rate warning. Now, that's not in itself a major problem. In the sim, the, the sim instructor would probably go, oh, that wasn't a particularly well, so long as they corrected safely, as that's the primary <laughs> requirement, so long as they corrected safely, got rid of it and still landed where they wanted to, this instructor would probably go, well, that wasn't ideal. Um, let's have a talk about that. But at least you've got it on the ground. Because they're at the point now when they're getting really a bit desperate for fuel. Uh, so I would have said, um, yeah, correct your glide path. Get rid of, you know, so descend the airplane as you require to get onto the correct glide path. Then correct your approach angle get rid of the don't sink or the, what was it, the uh, warning they got? Um, um, high sink rate or something? Yeah, excessive sink, sink rate, rate warning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Get rid of the warning uh, and then carry on. Even if you do it at 100 feet, you can still safely do a go around from 100 feet. By the by, that, that wasn't ideal. But now they're flying a teardrop procedure uh, to try and land on and they're getting really tight on gas uh, and um, you know the aircraft finally having flown a, a visual teardrop I guess they finally got it on the ground significantly below three tons uh, which was their final reserve fuel so uh, when you're on a, 
a big aeroplane and you're getting down to those levels of fuel, you are really in desperate straits. So, you know, there are a couple of times here where I thought the crew should really have got a grip of the situation and uh, either made a better decision or just landed the damned aeroplane to hell with everything else because, you know, <laughs> you don't want to run out of fuel. It's about the most appalling thing you can do as a crew to, if you mismanage your uh, fuel load uh, to run out of fuel in the air. I can't think of many worse things that you can do as a professional pilot. I agree. agree with all that. Um, yeah, I think that the commander made a decision. We're going to give you one more hold and then we're on the way or, or this is, you know, this is what we're going to do. And then it was like, Oh, well maybe, maybe the weather is improving enough where we can just stick it out one more lap because, Hey, we're about the same distance from, you know, from Singapore and Batam. So, um, you know, that may have seemed like a pretty darn good, uh, decision, except as you mentioned, when you're when you're talking about weather patterns like this, uh, you know you're you're not far from the equator. You have a lot of uh, tropical weather, or thunderstorms, thunderstorms. I, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning, as far as what briefing they received way back when they started the flight at Heathrow, which was many hours before this. Um, uh, thunderstorms, you know, really are difficult to to to. Um, uh, forecast with any specific specific specificity um that's a good word isn't it yeah that sounds like one yeah that's a good one um and uh yeah where's my bell oh oh i i knew that it was but this button right here even though it doesn't have anything on here to indicate that it (laughs) just knew it you've been right right so many times so that should be right mean right to the right of it yep there's my buzzer that's all I know on this page of my stream deck. Anyway, um, so the so the the weather condition. I, mean, I kind of associate this with flying down to South Florida. Same sort of thing. Where Absolutely, you get down it's there, just in my mind. Thunderstorm. Well. Yeah, and and sometime now usually the ninety something percent of the time or more, the the weather the thunderstorm activity affecting let's say Miami International may not be affecting Lauderdale Fort Lauderdale or West Palm Beach you know there there are several options that you have down there with you know big big runways um you know lots of things but every now and then every once in a while <laughs> and the only time that I've ever declared minimum fuel and then emergency fuel was uh, coming down from New York City down to, I think we were initially supposed to go into Lauderdale, and we were you know, we held here for a while, and then we went down over here and held for a while, and uh, basically this thunderstorm system took out all of those airports, and the closest one oh, wow. that we that was clear of the weather was quite a ways up the coast, Melbourne, I think. Um, I, I'm not sure about that now because it's been a while. Anyway. Uh, it was uh, talking about sucking the old cushion um, through the <laughs> through your arse, through your pants. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, so anyway, I'm not going to go into all the details of that. It turned out it was a happy ending. We ended up actually landing at Fort Lauderdale, uh, well above our minimum fuel, um, and 
Anyway, Neil has that, a question. You that guys. was uh, oh, Neil's, uh, Neil Landwarm in our audience says, regardless of what briefing they had at Heathrow, don't you update regularly in flight? Yes, I would think so, uh, Neil. I, I know yeah, it was a requirement for us. you can't put more fuel on once you're airborne, no. Neil. That's the, that's but at the, least that's the you, decision I'm talking it, about. Right. But at least, yeah, now you know that, oh, yeah, we probably should have put more fuel. Well, now we know we're in a situation where we don't have a lot of fuel to play with once we get down there and we're going to have to be decisive when we make the decision to divert if that's a possibility. Neil also knows um, why you didn't want to go to Melbourne, Jeff. Yeah, Melbourne is a very long way from Florida. Yeah, <laughs> Melbourne, Florida, <laughs> not Melbourne, uh, Australia. Yeah, I don't think we had enough fuel for the for that kind of divert. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was the mad dog, but still, yeah, no. Um, so that's that's a, a key part of what you were um, analyzing there. Nick, the other thing, because thunderstorms, if they move through an airport, um, I've seen this many times in my career where the winds shift 180 degrees when the when that frontal mm. passage occurs or yep. the cells go through. Um, so um, I could see kind of getting like behind the power curve on this one where everything, because it takes a while to turn airplanes, airports around and get airplanes re-lined up for the new winds and all that kind of stuff. So I, I can, man, I can see all that happening as well. Um, and I, um, let's see, what was the other thing I was going to say? The, oh, and I agree with you. You break out. Okay. I, I think the only thing I can say for the commander here or the crew is when they broke out that first time and they could see the runway, Maybe there were so many, it was so jarring that they're getting this no auto land and other things going on that they thought, you know, maybe we shouldn't continue and let's figure out exactly why. Why are we getting this? Maybe there's something else going on that I'm not aware of and we need to just like call it off and, you know, do another lap around and see what's going on. I mean, that's the only thing that I can say there. But yeah, I, I would I understand have. That. I understand that entirely, yeah. and uh, if you don't quite understand this situation, it's probably safer to go around, except, right. of course, as, as the fuel level comes down, <laughs> that decision no, becomes that's... harder and harder to make. Eventually you go, exactly. there's a piece of concrete in front of us, and we're getting damn low on fuel. Let's just put it on it and uh, talk about the order <laughs> in the debris. Well, I think you know me. And if, <laughs> yeah. if I were in that situation and I break out and I yeah. see the runway in front of me, I'm going, we're going for it. We're, I mean, unless it's going to take a, a, a dangerously yeah. excessive sink rate to get it down. Another reason why the sink rate probably the second time they tried that runway was excessive and they got the warning is the fact that, you know, you have that tailwind, a very strong yeah. tailwind. That Anytime you have a tailwind on a normal glide path, your ground speed is a lot faster. And so to maintain that same angle, you have to, the uh, loss of altitude has to be much higher. So, it, so I would have said, as you just mentioned, Nick, um, okay, I'm acknowledging it's giving me a sink rate warming, warning. I'm aware of that. Um, but I have the, the situation under control and we are going to continue, you know, and, and then just get the darn thing on the ground. Um, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Now, um, so, UH Blackhawk's got a point. He says you need to set up a fuel barrier, a bingo fuel at a level when you make the final decision to go out of here. And I think they had done that, but they promptly broke it when they decided to do another go around 
the uh, pattern around the uh, holding pattern and then do do an orbit. But they had decided that they were going to divert. So I think they reached that point. But I suspect something that air traffic said is, oh, we're probably going to open the airport and we're going to swing the runway around and you could probably make an approach that perhaps lured them. I don't know exactly what the conversation was, but I, it might have lured them into deciding to change that. Yeah. And, and until you've been in that situation, and Nick, you probably have been, and I know I have been more than mm. once, where you just like, oh, well, maybe there's hope. Maybe, yes, maybe there's, <laughs> okay, maybe just one, even though I said, <laughs> yeah. I've already made the irrevocable wow. decision that we're going to divert. Well, let me. I let mean, me the nice thing about that. a plan you have is that you can always review it. Uh, and yes. that can lead to a change in the plan uh, by at least 180 degrees and sometimes. But yeah, you yeah, got to let me to tell you, flexible. anytime you have hindsight to look, you know, to look at it in the, in hindsight, yeah. you go, well, yeah, we shouldn't have dilly dallied around anymore. And we should have gone over to there and the weather would have been fine. Blah, blah, you know, so it's so yeah. easy to look back at it and go, yeah, that, that wasn't good. That good decision. No. So I'm sorry. I think I stepped all over you, Nick. You were still saying something very. No, no, that was it. No, I agree. hundred percent. Okay. I think it was uh, a very interesting one because it's rarely we see those really kind of difficult command decisions that the captain has to make uh, on occasions when the weather is so variable and the conditions are so poor and the fuel is so low. This is the sort of uh, scenario that. Every captain fears, but we all hope that we will deal with it. I mean, they dealt with it. They got it on the ground. They didn't run out of fuel, but they came damn close, I think. Yep. I agree. All right. Very good. Uh, next in our news. Another final report. Another final report from the Aviation Herald. Uh, this happened on the 21st of March in 2022. Um, I don't think we I don't think we covered this one uh, after it happened. It doesn't look no. familiar to me at all. Uh, looks like an Indigo Airbus A320-200 registration Victor Tango India Alpha Yankee performing flight 6261 from Delhi to Mumbai was nearing Mumbai at flight level 380. Had just contacted Mumbai radar when the crew requested a descent. ATC cleared them to descend to flight level 370. The crew read back. They were cleared down to flight level 310. The controller missed the incorrect readback. The crew initiated the descent to flight level 310. Meanwhile, an Air Asia India Airbus A320-200 registration Victor Tango Hotel Yankee Delta performing flight 773 from Delhi to Goa, India, was en route at flight level 360. When a predictive conflict warning activated at the controller's desk, uh, that's okay. So that I'm sorry, I'm, I misread that. Uh, so at this time, flight level three six zero, Air Asia India is going the other direction, and uh, the controller got a com a predictive conflict warning. On checking the data, the controller recognized that uh, the first flight, the six to the Air and uh, Indigo. Um, had selected flight level 310 as their target altitude and radioed the crew to stop the descent at flight level 370. However, there was no response. The controller again tried to radio the crew. Again, no response. Third call also remained without a response. 
In the meantime, the co-pilot who had left the cockpit of uh, the Indigo Airbus, the first jet, who was descending below what the controller wanted them to descend, returned to the cockpit and the captain handed control to him, leaving the cockpit for a toilet break. Upon the fourth call to stop the descent at flight level 370, the co-pilot responded they had already descended below flight level 370 and stopped the descent at flight level 360. The controller had already instructed the other flight to descend to flight level 350. The AirAsia crew complied. The conflict warning ceased. Both aircraft were cleared for further descent and landed safely at their destinations. India's AAIB released their final report. Uh, let's see. Contributory factors. Wait, wait, I guess the the probable cause says the breach of separation occurred due to non-adherence of a standard operating procedures on the part of a flight crew of 6261, that first jet, wherein they were not maintaining listening watch when the area controller transmitted multiple times to maintain flight level 370 after the predictive conflict warning uh, was generated. Contributory contributory factors, readback error made by the flight crew of 6261 to the clear descent level, flight level 370. They said 310 instead. Controller did not correct the readback error. Um, so, yeah, he missed the fact that they think they're going down to 31. And uh, so they, on their way, they went. Uh, the error indigo, um, the indigo air bus, um, were busy in handing over and taking over controls as the pilot in command immediately left the cockpit after the co-pilot re-entered, which probably led to the crew not maintaining listening watch at a critical situation. Maybe they say this further down um, in the report, um, but I'm wondering when they initially got that clearance from 38 to 37, were they both there or was the co-pilot out and just returning to i had the feeling reading it that they were both there for that and then they started their toilet breaks so uh but i might be wrong um oh this is an interesting thing here that wasn't um well it's in more of the uh in the meat of the story here when they were um when the pilot command requested descent and the controller gave them the descent to flight level 370. The pilot in command made a readback error and read back the descent clearance as descend flight level 310. Okay. And then they said confirm, to which the air traffic controller also confirmed as I fly 6261 affirm. So that makes it even much, much well, worse. Well, yeah, that, that's a big no-no, that particular bit, isn't it? Because we were always taught... You never give the height you think you're going to if you ask for a clarification because just this mistake can happen. The, uh, the, if, you, you, if you want to find out what height you've cleared to, you say, confirm height cleared to, and then the t- controller will tell you. You don't give the height you think you've been cleared to because if the controller misses that and says, as this bloke did, affirm, then you've just reconfirmed the error. So you get the controller to give you the clearance, the full clearance again by not including that height in your request. Uh, At least yeah. that's what so we let them. So it's, it's almost like a leading question, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. In, mm-hmm. in a trial, yes, in, you know, indeed. you're leading the indeed. you're leading the witness. Yeah. Indeed. Um, good yes. point. <laughs> but 
But even though, Overruled. but even then, that just shows you the controller wasn't really, really doing Listen a good out. job of listening to what they no. were saying. Because he just said, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Affirm. No. <laughs> no. You didn't hear me say 310. So, yeah. Wow. Communication, obviously, was the was the issue here. And uh, um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, the, the, the guys, uh, I don't know what they have with their cockpit door procedure and getting out to get in the loo just at the top of the same. We, as Pilots, we're, those of us on long haul or longish flights, always try and get into the loo uh, just before the top of descent because we know we've got about 45 minutes before we get on the ground and then another 15 minutes before we can get out of the cockpit. Uh, so you've got to have an hour's worth of bladder capacity. <laughs> so it's a good idea <laughs> yeah, exactly. to free up a little spare. Uh, but, of course, uh, it, just this sort of thing can happen. You still have to be... Uh, even though you're desperate to get out there, and they they may even have the cabin crew guarding the toilet for you, so you can nip straight in and get back straight out again. You've still got to do a decent handover when you leave only one bloke on the flight deck. Tell him what's happened while he's been gone, and and give all the clearances. And I suspect that this interruption was part of the problem. A lot of distraction going on there, and yeah. that's just it always happens at the wrong time, right? Um, Indeed. This is uh, what do you think about this, Nick? Uh, this paragraph here: uh, the pilot command set the descent level to flight level three one zero in error, uh, and accordingly set the rate of descent as two thousand six hundred and twenty four feet per minute. Yeah, that seems uh, a bit odd and a bit high. So I'm not quite sure why he did that. It's a very odd number too. Well, I'd, I'd always tended to use round numbers for some reason but uh yeah i usually yeah. like start at thousand feet per minute or so and then of course yeah. we know that they're getting closer to the their destination and they're probably feeling like they're holding us up here we need you know and uh, indicated by the fact that they had to request a descent so maybe they're thinking oh man we really need to get this thing back down on the profile right yeah um, but the usual thing is but, just to go open descent on the airbus then and let the uh let the flight computer get you back onto the profile because it knows where the profile is. You've got a little donut indicating and uh, the the computer will uh, descend the airplane at appropriate rate to get you there. They they do uh, make the point here that uh, the, the 2,648 feet per minute uh, was way above the maximum uh, amount of 1,500 feet per minute as per the standard operating procedure. So that seems uh, a there is a they have a rule figure, but there you go. Well, fifteen hundred feet. Um, maybe that's. I'm wondering if that's like you can't ever exceed that, or maybe that's just know. like initially. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's just initially you don't exceed fifteen hundred feet per minute. I don't yeah. know. KFC, and then of course, if they, sorry? yeah, yeah, KFC asked to know if you can set something so specific. No, no, you can't. You can only go to within a uh, hundred feet of per minute. So anything ends in 100 feet per minute. So how they got the figure of uh, 2648 out of it, I suspect it's just, a, you know, the, the data that they got out of the uh, dump that they yeah, took it, from the... Like, it says, as, as, let's see, 2,624 FPM on FMS, and the aircraft started descending at a faster rate. So, yeah, I don't think they, they didn't set that rate of descent it was the fms the you know the fms probably thought you know we're way behind the um proper 
profile here. Let me go ahead and try to get you down to it. Maybe that's why it went so quickly. Um, What did I miss, Liz? Uh, No, Super Fred Driver was disagreeing there with uh, Nick. Oh, well. It's been a while since I looked at those numbers. So I. I, Ten foot increments. The airplane that I fly ends in a zero. You can't set a single foot. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm willing to kowtow to people with more recent cockpit experience. Oh, he thinks you were correct, Nick. He's he's about kowtowing to you. Oh, okay. Oh, was Lockheed. Those um, lucky boys. Yeah. Trust yeah. Boys. Any other thing I'll I'll put in this? I don't think the air trafficker is completely blameless from this situation. For mm-hmm. a start, oh, no. when they ask for a descent, <laughs> when they ask for a descent, the guy only gave him one thousand feet, so he cleared them from three seven zero to, or he cleared them three eight zero to three seven zero. Is that right? They were yes, they were. They were given a one thousand foot step down. They wanted to commence their descent proper, but he I don't know if he told them why. If he'd said you cleared descent flight level three seven zero, there's traffic ahead at three six zero, they would have immediately gone, Oh, okay. Well Ooh, it can't possibly that's... be three one zero, can it? So I think sometimes the air traffickers just, you know, give a clearance. If they if they're very busy, that is probably all they can do. But certainly if time permits, it's always in good SA for the crew for you to tell them why, particularly if there's traffic that's impeding them. Just in case they accidentally bust that altitude, they've got to know why they're leveling. And not only that, very good point. Not only that, that would be a way for the controller to communicate with the Indigo air crew. Yeah, I know I'm I'm starting you down late and you're getting close. You know, you're you're you feel like you're being rushed now. Um, but let me tell you why. You have opposite direction traffic at flight yeah. level three six zero. Yeah. And so just, you know, descend to thirty seven. We maintain our thousand feet per minute. And yeah. obviously he's not going to go into all that detail, but still, at least you as you mentioned, you now you give the crew a reason uh, for the not very large descent and they won't go blowing through it down to 31. Yeah. I mean, I agree that more communication yeah. would have been better in this case. Yeah. I must admit, sure. it's one thing I always appreciated from the American controllers is that they always tried to do that. If they had opposing traffic that was restricting you, they generally told you about it because there's obviously a, a potential danger there with oncoming traffic only a thousand feet away. Uh, you think? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Jeff, um, I think you got a video coming up for the next one. Or oh, videos. thanks, Liz. I'll uh, I'll get that queued up. Um, so looks like uh, anything else to any cherry to put on top of the whipped cream on that one, uh, Nick? No, no. I'm I'm just. Uh, they didn't get to the situation where the TCAS went off, so it wasn't so dire. Uh, as to have that happen. And thank heavens we have that TCAS system because the number of airplanes that we do have that get adjacent to each other, that we know it's our last-ditch defense, but it's always good to know it's there. Yes, for sure, for sure. All right, uh, let me load, get a load of this. Next, this Again, from the Aviation Herald, and again, a final report. This accident occurred on the 7th of April of last year. 
um, hydraulic failure leads or results in a runway excursion. This is a, a DHL uh, Expresso Boeing 757-200 at San Jose, uh, Costa Rica. And uh, let's uh, have a look at this uh, this video here. I think I don't want to have the sound up too much. Here we go. All right. Um, so the they were having a problem with hydraulics, and uh, they're coming in for an emergency landing. The uh, air rescue firefighting crews are positioned, and uh, they've touched down. Spoilers are up. The ones that work with this particular failure sounds like reverse is activated. Oh, it's coming to a stop. Oh, starting to go to the right a little bit. Going to the right. And oh, no. It's kind of doing a donut and it's going off the runway. And you can hear the, the people in the background uh, expressing their surprise uh, that this airplane has just gone off the side of the runway. Oh, yeah. I don't know what they're saying, but it, it's not good. And, uh, oh, the fire fast, trucks are yeah. pretty damn quick, yep. didn't they? That's yeah. impressive. And they're uh, they're over there, and uh, they're going to spray some stuff. I think they're going to look and see if there's any kind of fire, any reason to spray any stuff. And at this point, they haven't done no any of that. Um, it's well, you'll have to look at the picture. Uh, well, I think we'll have that in the in the audio only podcast uh, on the chapter image. Of the uh, unusually, um, the unusual position of the seven fifty seven. Yeah, I've oh, got some. This guy decided. Got, yeah, oh, there let's we go. Spray, let's spray some stuff over here on the front part of the yeah, aircraft. Yeah, I've been waiting fifteen years to spray an airplane. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to let this go to waste. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, Tim, Tim Van Ram says that looks like a slippery banana. It does look like a slippery banana, Tim. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, and here's another um, uh, video. Um, oh, there we go. For a minute there, I didn't think it was a video that I was looking at. Okay, here's the uh, airplane coming in again. Again, it's a DHL 757-200. And looks like it's going pretty fast. Yeah, it is. And... Coming in, touching down somewhere. I can't tell where in the frame to look for it, but hopefully that'll become clear. Oh, yeah, that's uh, the 757 <laughs> Honking its horn, letting people know it's about to land. <laughs> there goes a forklift. Uh, there's a forklift, yeah. Oh, uh, they must know that they're oh, going to need a forklift to get that thing out of the ditch. Behind the there he is. Here oh, there he we go. There he is. Again, very similar to the uh, the angle that we saw before. Um, some of the spoilers are up, and it's oh, decelerating. That's why the trucks were there so quick? They're already pre-positioned. Yep. And oh. now we got looks like some smoking brakes, and now we oh, some smoking brakes. Uy, madre santa mai. Right. Oh, ouch. Yeah. I'm not sure they're going to be able to. They're not going to be able to use that airplane again, I don't believe. Um, 
Why would they? But it want was a good to? landing because uh, they were uh, no no injuries. They were able to get out of the aircraft um, once it uh, <laughs> everything came to an end there. Um, okay, so let's uh, read what they had to say with this final report. Um, the probable cause of the accident were fatigue and stress in individual wires in the cross-section of flexible hydraulic retraction hose of left main landing gear downward locking actor. Boy, it went right down in a little ditch there. Um, Inadvertent synchronized movement of right-hand reverse thrust lever and left engine control thrust lever as a reaction to muscle memory. Huh? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, how do we? Good, how really? did this happen? Uh, the flight crew received a left hydraulic system low quantity indication, followed by a left low hydraulic system pressure indication. The crew properly followed the non-normal procedures for low hydraulic pressure and showed good cockpit resource or crew resource management. The aircraft was intact prior to impact. That's what we witnessed there. The aircraft touched down normally. And initially rolled out normally until reaching a beam taxiway delta where a loss of control occurred with heavy braking on the right uh, on the main landing gear. And the aircraft veered to the right, exited the runway to the south of taxiway kilo, ran over uneven terrain, causing the collapse of the landing gear and fracture of fuselage, amongst other damage. All damage to the airframe was attributed to impact forces. The engine fan blade showed both engines were running. Flight crew fatigue was not a factor. Alcohol and drug tests on both flight crew were negative, and uh, both crew were properly licensed and experienced. Now, this is the one I highlighted here. According to the non-normal procedures, the left-hand hydraulic failure meant that left-hand thrust reverse, auto brakes, rudder ratio, spoilers 3, 5, 8, and 10, and nose wheel steering were inoperative. And they would have known that, right? Because they've done the yep. procedure, and I'm sure that the procedure indicates to them that that's uh, – so they're going to have right reverse, no left reverse, and they're not going to get all the spoilers they're used to having. And they're not going to have auto brakes, and uh, nose wheel steering is inoperative. Um, let's see. The uh, Let me scroll down here. Um, prior to reaching taxiing speed – the left-hand throttle lever angle, I'm saying lever and lever just to cover all the bases here. Uh, the <laughs> left-hand the- throttle lever angle began to increase to 81 degrees. The left-hand N1 uh, increased to 92% at 60 knots. Um, let's see, associated with a lon- longitudinal acceleration of 0.6 G. And then the master warning activated. Uh, the crew achieved the desired results of the non-normal checklist with the exception of the left-hand throttle lever advancing just prior to loss of control and the runway excursion. A failure of the throttle system was ruled out. The inadvertent synchronous movement of right-hand reverse thrust lever and left-hand engine control thrust lever is considered probable. Okay, so what I'm getting out of this is maybe the captain didn't realize, or I think he was the pilot flying, well, whoever was flying. I think it was a captain, right? The pilot in command. Um, and, I haven't what picked up matter? on that. I wasn't sure. Well, what, whichever one it was, um, they they got the right reverse because it's still working. And for some reason, 
the uh, they they advanced the left throttle lever, not in reverse, but just pushed up the throttles or the throttle on the left hand side. Eighty one percent. I mean, that's that is considerable. That's that's a big movement of the well, uh, left. Eighty one degrees, now, and it got to ninety two percent. N one. I'm sorry, so you're right. Eighty one degrees. Eighty yeah, full power. <laughs> Yeah, 92% is a heck of a lot of power. Yep. And if you have right reverse out and and the left engine going forward almost full, obviously you're going to have a, <laughs> yeah. a, a, yeah. a turning movement um, going you know, to the right. Why they said muscle memory was something to do with it. I don't know. Muscle. So most, I don't, you know, I, I, I flew the 727. I'm assuming that the the, the uh, throttles on the 757 are similar, where you you pull back the the power levers to the to a stop, you know, aft, and then you reach up and there are some other little levers on top of the normal reversers. I mean, the normal throttles, where you you pull up and back on those. But I could be wrong. Maybe they have a different style. Hey, anybody in our in our chat room? Um, Familiar with seven five seven six throttles, um, I'm 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 assuming they work the same way that the seven twenty seven works and the and the Boeing seven one seven that I fly, which is not really a Boeing, it's a McDonnell Douglas, but where you you have like two separate levers that you activate and you activate them in a in a different motion than you would if you were advancing the the th- the thrust. The, the the thrust levers forward for forward thrust, so I'm not sure how muscle memory. I don't I don't really get how this works. I think UH Blackhawk is telling that's the you style of right thrust reverser that they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, and that's I don't also the same on the that. Airbus. We uh, when you when you close the uh, throttles, you've got easy access to the thrust reversers, which are a separate set of levers mounted on the back of the throttles, which you hook your fingers on and lift them up. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and the fact is that when the throttles are open, they're very hard to get to. So, you know, it really uh, is a good ergonomic design. So you have mm-hmm. to pull the throttles to idle to get good access to the thrust reversers. And then there, it's yep. a completely different action to that that you'd need to open the throttles. It's essentially the same um, way on the on the Boeing as well, um, yeah, which is a more traditional kind of setup. Um but uh, KFC make good winglets in our um, live audience says maybe he saw the right N1 increase, wanted to see N1 increase in the left too, but inadvertently throttled up, forgetting they had. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be looking at my N1 gauge at this point of uh, landing to see. No, what I'm going to be looking percent. to disengage my reverses. Right. Which is the um, next action you're going to do on the throttle. So I'm just wondering. What advancing the left engine throttle has to do with possibly disengaging? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I this is eludes me on this one. I mean, to be to be fair, uh, once you got the reverses up, um, you, the, your action to throttle the reverses down again is to push them forward. So I'm going. Did he push the throttle forward? Did he get confused as to which engine he had in reverse? And he pushed the throttle forward because he couldn't find the reverser lever on the left. He just pushed the left throttle forward, thinking he was disengaging the reversers on the that he had deployed. But 
I, I'm guessing here. It just uh, it defies logic. But I mean, I've heard of lots of um, people who do these kind of what would should be a perfectly normal selection, and they do something completely weird. I remember a, a BOAC captain saying that it was on a Trident long time ago, saying that one day he uh, his first officer called rotate and he put the parking brake on and he said he has no idea oh my god no, no explanation as to why he had this cognitive failure but he just reached out and put the parking brake on and burst all his tires um so wow. you go why do people do things well the the brain is not infallible is all i brain can fart. say well yeah. i think I think I know the reason for all this. Uh, he was AFU. Mm. AFU. All, all fudged all. up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, indeed. He was uh, confused. I, I, Very confused. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that they just handle an emergency. I, it's not that serious having a, a single hydraulic failure, but it's serious enough. You've lost a lot of systems. You've had to deal with it, brief it, etc. Set it up, do a nice landing. You're trolling all down the runway. You got to sixty or seventy knots, and all of a sudden you do this kind of thing: ground loop the airplane off the runway and wreck it, probably for good. You go, how on earth Aww. can that happen? Oh, why did that yeah. happen? Engine pointing yeah. downwards there. That doesn't look uh, good. But there you yeah, go. Yeah, that, uh, that that right engine pointing downwards almost looks like it's, it's just kind of lowered its head. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> oh. It's 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 dead. Oh, yeah. Why did you do that? Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's the way the if you if we had a photograph of the uh, of the captain, that's probably what he was doing too. Yeah, he was looking. Yeah. yeah. Just oh, had God, his head down, no. like, oh, why oh, did I do that? How did I manage to do that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's enough final reports for a Okay, while. Enough, enough final reports, uh, Liz is saying. Let's, um, this next one's weird, though. This is a really weird one. This is, <laughs> I have to say, I had to reread this one a, a couple of times. Think, what? What now? What? I don't understand. Yep. Again, from the Aviation Herald, uh, a Titan Airways Airbus A321-200 registration golf, golf <laughs> Oscar Alpha Tango Whiskey. Performing flight uh, 305 Yankee from goat. London, Stansted. <laughs> yeah, goat. What's that? Goat W. Goat W. Uh, greatest yeah. of all time, W. Win. <laughs> I don't know. Winner. What, winner. winner. Okay. Uh, from London, Stansted uh, to Orlando. Although we're going to find here that that maybe that's what it was on paper, but they were actually positioning, repositioning the airplane from. Uh, Stansted to somewhere else, I think. I don't think they were really going to go all the way to Orlando, put a Florida. Article in there after. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, they were climbing through about 10,000 feet out of Stansted's runway 22 when the crew noticed excessive noise in the cabin. Uh, they stopped the climb at about uh, yes. flight level 150, 15,000. left the door open. Now <laughs> what, what's the going on? I, what? <laughs> <laughs> I returned to Stansted for a safe landing on runway 22 about 37 minutes after departure. The British Air Accidents Investigation Branch reported it was discovered three cabin windows were missing or loose, and there was also damage to the left-hand stabilizer. The aircraft sustained uh, substantial damage. 
The occurrence was rated an accident and is being investigated by the AAIB. The aircraft had been in a workshop in um, Southend for maintenance, repair, and overhaul between September 23rd, 2023 and October 2nd, 2023, uh, performing a positioning flight on the 2nd of September to Stansted and was on its first revenue flight. Uh, the air, Oh, okay. The aircraft. Well, I kind of got the impression here that it, they didn't have any passengers on board. Well, that's the aircraft. When they say revenue flight, perhaps they were a um, a charter and they were going out to the the place to pick up their passengers. I don't know. Oh, see, my company would not refer to that as a revenue flight. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, the aircraft tail. That that's what is confusing to me. That I just got. Yep. It's it's your kind of feeling as well that it was just nothing but airline crew on this thing, right? Yeah, that's what I assumed. Okay. Otherwise, we probably would have seen a lot of uh, TikTok and YouTube yes. uh, videos about and, this and the, thing happening. Someone might have said, uh, excuse me, this window beside my seat. It's supposed to be this loud. It. It's noisy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, let's see. The aircraft, tail number uh, Golf, Golf, Bravo, November, India had been used for VIP flights on behalf of the British government until the 23rd of September and had been returned to Titan. So that's why there was a different registration number on it. So it had been used by the British government. If it was being used by the government, they should have left goat on it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think they changed it to goat, though, didn't they? Oh, they might have done, yes. Golf, Bravo, November, India. What a great choice, then. Yeah. Yeah. so it sounds to me like this thing. Oh, I haven't read the second article. Sorry, Liz. Uh, it's, not, what, it's not that much different in there. Okay. Uh, so okay. So they've gone routine maintenance, undergone routine maintenance on this thing. They had to repaint the thing. So that's probably why the, maybe the outer panes of some of these windows were not either there or not affixed to the aircraft very well. Maybe. That's something that uh, uh, the painters uh, or the crew that's supposed to come in after the thing has been repainted uh, ensures that everything is the way it's supposed to be. It sounds like quality control here was lacking. Oh, I I think so, yeah. I mean, if they just incorrectly fitted the windows, like uh, as happened on that uh, well-known accident where the the captain got sucked oh, out of sucked the out. Yeah. out of the cockpit window. Uh, they they just used the wrong bolt size on that. So if they if they just badly fitted the windows, uh, I guess they could have. And the fact that there was stabilator damage made me feel that there's a good chance the windows flew off, popped out, wow. hit the stabilator as they went past, and and that's it. So they were probably in situ because. If they weren't, I was going to have a go at the, the crew for not doing a proper walk around. Yeah. Um, you did. Do you notice that there were like big holes where there's supposed to be glass? Windows. Yeah, exactly. They were looking at the yeah, tires window. instead of the windows. Because, yeah. you know, I, I see a lot of people wander around the airplanes and they're getting distracted. They're not really doing a proper look, but it's amazing what you can see if you do actually look at your airplane. But uh, it might they might have been in place, so they might have just popped out. Um, was the noise the first thing? Yeah, you don't get a lot of um, uh, pressurization indications uh, very early on in the flight. The noise would have been quite excessive once they hit a couple of hundred knots, though. So, uh, um, 
I'm still kind uh, of confused because I, I thought I read somewhere that it was just like the outer panes uh, were were missing and flew off and not the actual more info. Um, and, you know, because it's there, there there's like an outer layer uh, and then an inside. I don't know. I'm not sure what. Well, that what yeah, it, I I don't know the uh, the outer panes. Of course, they're the pressure um, holding area. The inner ones are just cosmetic, aren't they, to stop people getting their noses frozen to the glass or <laughs> oh yeah true <laughs> by rubbing yeah, their and those inner pans are the ones that are usually all scratched up and got yeah. smudges and then oily hair marks and all that <laughs> kind of good stuff <laughs> yeah, that's right. just yeah. when you're trying to take a decent picture yeah i know but um, well i'm wondering if maybe they had the shades down um, well, could be. well, probably not because then uh, the, the rule over there is that when you take off land, you have to have the uh, window shades open, right? Well, if you have Isn't passengers it? on board. Oh. Because okay. you're, not, you're yeah, not really a factory if you don't have well, passengers. We'll have to watch for this report. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think we still, need more information. But uh, Yeah, more information is required on this. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, I think um, cock-up is written, up, written all over this one. <laughs> yeah. And in, in this case, it sounds like it wasn't the crew's fault, unless it was really yes, super obvious that yes. uh, there was a bad walk around. <laughs> but yes, we, we, we get... <laughs> wait, where is it? Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Crew gonna... one, maintenance zero. <laughs> could be. Could be. We'll uh, yeah. wait and see. Okay. Well... We're going to go ahead and uh, call it quits on the news for this episode, and we're going to do, yeah, we're going to hold those over for the next um, episode next week. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to hit this little button here, uh, getting to know us. It's that time of the episode where we get to know what we've been up to between flights, between episodes, and... uh, I'm going to uh, defer to the good Captain Nicholas here. Uh, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, well, I've been having some fun. I uh, went bowling for my county at a match against Surrey. I won't say much about it other than oh, look it at was at a really smart uh, bowling club. Uh, very nicely uh, organized this club. Good restaurant. Uh, two outside, full-size outside uh, greens. I think I think the thing uh, looks to me, what Liz is asking where this was, it, it must be in um, Idaho, Boise, in, Idaho. No. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have, you, have, you seen the, uh, have you seen the football uh, field at uh, Boise State? No, I State? haven't. No. Uh, no. Yeah, they, it's, it's blue, like this very, very bright blue color. Oh, wow. I thought first it was in thing- Kentucky. It was bluegrass. Ah, no, it could well, be bluegrass indeed. Uh, it's it, Sutton. Uh, on the edge of uh, London, very nice club. Uh, but first time I'd ever played there, and I must admit, I found the the blue a little disconcerting. Uh, but uh, so it took us a little while to get the hang of the green. So we lost <laughs> quite blue. a few shots on the very first <laughs> few ends, and never made them back again. Although we held them in check from then on, we couldn't make up much progress again. So we lost that match. Uh, but we weren't the worst. Uh, there were other rinks because uh, I think we had five, uh, you know, rinks playing, five teams from each uh, county playing against each other. But uh, anyway, but enough said about that. We lost it. There you go. Well done, Surrey, is all I can say. Um, and I did a couple of uh, uh, photo shoots. I mentioned one last time. Uh, did a, a a nice one for a. Uh, 
a lady who's been a previous client, and I took a couple of bowling buddies who've got nice dogs, and uh, I um, I took uh, pictures, and also um, they're one of them is a keen photographer, so I was giving a, a few hints on uh, the best setting camera settings to use for dog photography, certainly if you want action shots like the one that's behind me. So that, that was really all I've done this week, so, but it's been really a busy week. Uh, the weather has been pretty foul, and it's going to be foul for the next couple of weeks. I mentioned it in the intro, but we've got a, no, sorry. a storm sorry. <laughs> coming along that uh, is going to be a bit uh, mean. Uh, and uh, we've, I looked at the forecast. We're actually, where I live, we're going to be well out of the worst of it but there's rain forecast for the next two weeks every day. So, wow. So despite the fact that we're out of the worst of it, there's still going to be a lot going on, I'm sorry to say. So it's all going to be a bit miserable. Well, if you have a leaky um, roof, um, hope, <laughs> hoping that you had that fixed. Yeah, I, I, I certainly now. do need to get some tarpaulin up there, I think, or whatever. Um Anyway, on uh, the different front, I've got some talks. I'm giving, you know, my usual. Oh, look, there's the blue, the blue yep. grass of. Is that actually grass or is that an artificial no, surface? No, it's artificial turf. Oh, they don't paint the grass then. And I don't think so. And and I had to make a correction. You said you you were having a tough time getting a lay of the green. I know why. <laughs> well, you did, there was, was no blue. green. It was blue. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, well done. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Now, um, continue. No, no, it's all right. I've got some talks coming up and giving uh, one a week for the next three weeks. So, wow. uh, The first one's across in Hamburg. And uh, I am going out there on the 25th. And I'm going to have a little mini meetup out in Hamburg. Um, Stefan uh, Bracht. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his surname, but Stefan, who we know well and is a, a great purveyor of gin, uh, mm. is going to meet me. And uh, he said, oh, I'll, I'll put the word out and see if anyone else wants to come. Um, cool. So let's just uh, say if, uh, if there anyone who wants to go to Hamburg, um, you might want to get in touch with Stefan and uh, we'll put his email address in the I'll put it in for you, Jeff. I'll Thanks. put it in your Okay. Um, and uh, it's telephone number two, right? So we can everybody can call him and give him prank calls. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Or, order pizza. Lots of prank calls, yeah. But uh, email <laughs> Stefan and uh, he'll give uh, you the details and uh, we can probably get together. And then uh, I'll be giving the talk on the 26th. And that is for the Hamburg branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society. But I am pretty sure they will let um, just about anyone come along. They sometimes have a nominal uh, charge if you want to. That applies to most of these organizations. Um, but I'm not absolutely certain where that... Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> my, Is that one of your my dogs, dogs suddenly decided you? to try and do something right behind me banged into my chair and so I'm, i do i'm sorry i stop that you go away right Up. so that's uh hamburg um <laughs> okay. the week after um i'll be up in manchester uh at 
TAS, TAS, the Aviation Society. They're tagged oh. onto the side of Manchester Airport, and that is on the evening of the 30th. I'll be uh, giving a chat to them. Um, and the following week, I'm at the Hawker Association uh, Hawker. talking to those fine folks. Yes, Hawker. Mm-hmm. Um that that is going to be uh, the Hawker. Oh, that's on the eighth of November, and they meet at the YMCA Hawker Centre at Kingston in Kingston on the edge of London. So uh, um, I'm sure, and they also um, film and uh, make that into a Zoom uh, simultaneous thing transmission at the same time. So that's nice. happening in the next three weeks. Hope it's not too stormy when you're flying to Hamburg. I, I hope it's not stormy going to Hamburg, uh, as Liz said, because uh, that would be mean. But just driving around the UK for the next uh, few days is going to be pretty foul. So uh, uh, just take care out there, everybody. Yeah, stay inside, hunker down. Yeah. Make sure you're well supplied with uh, beer Jilly doing and all the dog walking. I'm sure whatever. <clears throat> yep, food you well, enjoy. Well, I, I I'm dog walking uh, tomorrow. Actually, I don't walk today in the rain. Jill is doing oh, it tomorrow. It's going to really rain. So uh, she she likes the rain. She tells me. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, very good. Very good. What have you um, been doing, Jeff? What have I been up to? Well, um, of course, I do my standard. Singing. Yeah. Was Ray. I? I think since the last show. Um, yeah the uh, the wedding uh, my. Um, Choir director's daughter uh, was married on uh, Friday of last week, and I believe they're still in Italy on their honeymoon. And uh, that was a a lot of fun getting to meet some of the extended family, and uh, it was a big, a great celebration. And uh, it was a beautiful mass, and of course the music was just tip top. Um, Had a a good uh, music uh, choir ensemble. Uh, put together, and we actually had brass. In fact, uh, the uh, the the celebrating priest, um, Father Paul, uh, at the very beginning, uh, looked up at the choir loft and he said, "This is the first time I've heard brass at a wedding." And I'm thinking, well, seems like a lot of weddings have brass, but anyway, um, he was impressed with all the uh, all the brass um, present. I told the uh, trumpet player, I said, "Man, I said." You know that that must have been very very tough for you because um, of the number of people that that were in attendance here at this wedding who are trumpeters. Um, mm. I mean that would be talking about a lot of peer pressure going on there. I would definitely not want to be the guy the guy you know playing the or gal playing the trumpet for their wedding. Yes, the the bride, the groom, the groom. I mean the bride's father and. I think most of the um, groomsmen were uh, trumpet players, and uh, yeah, there was a whole bunch of people um, who were uh, were trumpet players there in in attendance. But it was beautiful. Steph and then, is here. Uh, Steph is here. Oh, good, good. Steph's uh, showing up. That's that's good to hear. Um, and then, um, yeah, I guess. Um, oh, there was some kind of a thing. I, well, I. I should say I don't want to share too much yet, but um, I haven't haven't been doing a lot of flying lately, 
and I was starting to get a little stir crazy. So I decided I would um, check out this location in Tennessee that I've been, I follow, follow all these uh, YouTube channels. And um, one of the channels talked about uh, buying some land up in Tennessee and developing and ended up finding another channel that was the same development that uh, many, many acres were purchased. And, and uh, so I'm thinking I'm going to go out there and see what that's all about just to kind of, kind of get an idea um, because I've been, you know, hearing them talk about it for so long. So I went up to uh, Linden, Tennessee, I drove up and it was interesting because, um, and enjoyable for me because I got out and was driving to the car. I took like, I purposely stayed off freeways, interstates um, and limited access highways and uh, just kind of did the old two lane country roads kind of all the way up. Yeah, it took an, took an extra hour to, to do it all, but it was so relaxing, and I really enjoyed that and got up there and stayed in this historic hotel in uh, in uh, Linden. And um, let me tell you, I don't know if you have this experience or not, but have you ever looked at, like, pictures of an Airbnb um you know, on, on, on the website and you, you see these properties and they look really, really amazing. And then you get there and you go, Hmm, doesn't what? really <laughs> yeah. look a lot like that picture that yeah. I was looking at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got that. the same, I got that same feeling in this historic property. I mean, and you could tell it was historic. It was old and run down. And, uh, I was, I, in my mind, I was expecting something entirely different. And uh, so that was kind of like as you ha- the the sad trombone sound right, and um, and then I was going to make my way somewhere else. I was going to make this a multiple day road trip. And after the kind of not great experience at the hotel, and and I'm thinking, you know, I'm just going to drive all the way back to Roswell APG headquarters, and. Uh, I think I should be able to make it back in time to uh, do the scheduled recording time and uh, just kind of reset and maybe. So that's why I, Roger said you're in the mobile studio. That's why Roger said at the beginning that I was. Uh, this was being recorded live from the mobile um, APG mobile studio, and uh, yeah, but no, it's the permanent. That's a studio. shame. Well, though, isn't it? That's a shame. Yeah, on the way back because I needed to get back in with enough time to kind of get everything reset up, um, I went ahead and took interstate, um, interstate highways on the way back. And wow, what a difference. It was like nerve wracking. I felt like it was in a race the whole time, lots of trucks Not and there relaxing. were a lot of up, uh, uphills and downhills. And, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the fact that anytime you're on major interstate highways and the grade is, you know, steep in any of those or both directions, you have a lot of backing up on the highway and it just gets intense. And it was nothing like my very, very relaxing, pleasurable drive on the way up to Tennessee. But, oh, well, you got to do what you got to do for the show, right? So. Absolutely. You're going to mention uh, Brian and Micah's thing? I am going to mention that, Liz. Uh, we were sent some audio feedback, a meetup, an APG meet. Well, not really technically an APG meetup, but I guess sort of. Open and to a, anyone. A, yeah, it's open to anyone, uh, but it's it's entitled APG Meetup November 12th, right? Did you make that title or did they? Nope, that's what it came Okay, out. so that's that that's official then. It's an APG, APG Meetup. Uh, so they sent some audio, so let's uh, have a listen. Hey, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, 
Miami. Rick, if you're there, one never knows. Hey, Captain Nick and Nick Camacho. Hello, everybody, and hello, APG listeners. This is your main man, Micah. And you know, it's Halloween season, so Brian and I decided to do something really spooky. We're going to have a meetup. Yes, we're going to have a The Journey is a Reward meetup, but all APG listeners are invited, and that's going to take place in Tampa, Florida. And you know when that's going to happen? Why don't you tell them, Brian? It's Sunday, November 12th at 4 p.m., and we're meeting at Your Pizza Shop. It's not my pizza shop. It's the pizza shop called Your Pizza Shop, and it's located at 1200 8th Avenue in Largo. And the menu looks great, and they've got a wonderful selection of beers, and we're hoping that a bunch of listeners will join us here. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to get a chance to get together. And look, you guys, you're all invited. So, Jeff, you know, you're practically retired now. Why don't you fly down for the day? Yeah, fly down to Tampa and come visit with us. We'd love to see you there. Well, oh, I was going to say, well, yeah, I might just do that. But I'm not going to do that because I'm going to be elsewhere not here in Roswell, but somewhere yes, else in the country on that weekend. So darn. Um, so it's official. It's it's not a um, the journey is the reward um, meetup. It's an APG meetup, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's not right. Said. No, they didn't say that. They said, I think it's mostly a the journey is the reward, which is the uh, show that those two do together. And uh, thank you for letting us know. And we'll play this a couple of more times before mm-hmm. the meetup. Now. Dear listeners, especially those of you in the Tampa Bay area, don't let me down like you did Paul up in Toronto. Oh, for God. <laughs> nobody, nobody showed up for that one. So hopefully, hopefully we get some APGers in that area to uh, to represent. And then um, I'm sure we'll get the full report from Micah and Brian. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing about that. And just going to add that... Um, if you are somewhere in the country, you suspect there might be others who have the syndrome and uh, you want to get together and, uh, I don't know, make fun of us, talk bad about us, whatever you do on these things, uh, feel free to do that. You know, you don't have to have any of the crew there. You can just have fun and uh, and just slap the uh, APG moniker on it and record some uh, audio, video, whatever, and send it to us and we'd be happy to play it on the show. And uh, look at that. I'm looking down at my screen and thinking something just gorgeous showed up there. It's, it's <laughs> Nick. Hey, no, it's not Nick. No, it's, it's Steph in a Halloween cops- costume. In a Halloween costume? <laughs> From her lakeside studio in South... Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper. Yes. Yo. Dr. Steph. Hi. It's me. All those things. Hi. Um, glad to be here. Sorry for being tardy as usual. Uh, work seems to do that to me these days. But Well, I mean, you're the only one that really has a real job anymore. <laughs> <laughs> one of us has to have a real Nick Camacho has a real yeah. job. Oh, yeah. I mean, but he's not here. He's so, not here because I mean, he's like working. Any of he's working. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> some of us have to, you know, pay the bills around here, keep the lights on, you know, things like yeah. that. I suppose. Tell, tell Steffi to vamp a bit. I'm making the ah. slides for her. So, uh, I'll, yes, you, you mentioned a lot I of things heard that, I, uh, <laughs> that I do. Um, 
pilot, skydiver, marathon runner, all those things. Um, I think you all were doing getting to know you as I yeah, came barging in. That's what we're so, in the middle of right now. Um, I can get into a few of those things if you'd like. Um, I did just send Liz some pictures so that she can show you what I've been getting up to, but you're going to have to add to my, my list, um, boat captain, um, oh. of things. Although it was, it was not a very successful boat captain. I'll just say. Like, like Dana. Uh, a little different, a little different. Yeah. Different kind um, of boat. Different kind of boat. Um, so here in uh, the Charlotte area, we have uh, this wonderful place called the Whitewater Center, U.S. National Whitewater Center, where they do quite a bit of whitewater um, Olympic training, kayaking, um, things like, uh, not kayaking, what is it? Yeah, kayaking, I suppose. Um, but they host a lot of other events as well. So frequently I go there and they do trail running. So I'll do their trail running races or their... Um, just uh, run club type things. They have live music and events. They have zip lines. They have rock climbing. They have all kinds of stuff. It's a really interesting, neat place. And some of the events they do are <laughs> um, very creative, we shall say. Um, and I've actually, the event that I did this past weekend is one that I've done in the past, but it's been eight, nine years maybe since the last time I participated in this one. Uh, the first year I did it, they held it in on a weekend in August. And then every year since then, it's been the same weekend as the Chicago Marathon. And I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. I'm not sure why. A lot of talking today. Um, so I haven't been able to participate because I do the Chicago Marathon every year. But this year, it was the weekend afterwards. So um, I recruited a friend. Her name is also Steph. So we um, put our yeah, not confusing at all. It's fine. If it's easy to get our attention, just yell our name. It's the same name. You'll get one of us. Um, but the event is build your own boat. So oh um, yeah, <laughs> okay. Now I understand what you're talking. Yes. About. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Sorry, I had to fill in a lot of, of information there because I didn't give Liz a lot of advance notice on my my pictures here. Um, so most people actually are pretty um, creative and <laughs> nice and actually put a lot of oh effort into God. building their boats. You can see behind us, you know, people have actually like made things that look like cars. Actually, I think the one way in the back there is just a, an inflatable pool that somebody That's where my to... epaulette and my black tie went. <laughs> yes, I stole them. Sorry. I borrowed them. I'm going to give them back. <laughs> and Colonel Jeff's yeah, hat. Yeah, it's, it's Colonel Jeff's hat. Actually, don't don't tell him we still have his hat. Um, actually, I think we did. Did we really return that? I don't know. Anyway, um <laughs> So uh, most people put a lot of uh, time and effort into this, and they came around, they interviewed all the different, there were actually like 40, almost 45 entries. Wow. 45 entries? Oh, Steph, uh -oh. come back. She, oh, yeah, she's she frozen? frozen. Don't. I told you never to push that button. That's the button that... Uh, the, Did you just that, push the, a button that should not be pushed because I disappeared? I think, no, you just did You're that. back. I didn't do I anything. didn't do it. I don't know. Uh, when I came in, my anything. internet wasn't working either, so we'll just... Sorry, we'll just go with it. Cleaners were there. Where did you lose me? So most people put a lot of effort into their boats, you know, like yeah. 40 hours, 60 hours, multiple weekends. Um, you know, we definitely signed up for this months ago, I think, while we were there for a, a run club and having a post-run um, beverage. We said, that'll be a good idea. We should do this. And then we didn't do anything until last Thursday to build a boat. Um so I panic ordered a bunch of pool floats and we duct taped them together. 
Um, we did draw uh, we a loose aviation theme going here. Notice the beverage in the hand. This was there. so. This was this first photo that you're looking at here was the night before. You have to show up for safety inspections. They do allow you to have a beverage while you're doing the. Because we aren't doing the safety inspections. Their team it's comes around and inspects right? I mean, you're having boats. a nice citrus. Um, yes, a citrusy. Fruit drink. Yes, yes. No, it's beer, isn't it's it? It's beer. It's definitely beer. Yeah. Um, but it, they are very specific in the instructions that before the actual competition, you are not to drink alcoholic beverages before you test your boat down the channel. So we did not. We were good. We did, uh, you did they know, give you like the, a certain time frame? Like how many hours before? No. Like eight hours? They just said not before. <laughs> so. Oh. But of course, we went almost last because we had quite a few repairs to make to our boat. So that put us kind of at the end of the line because we weren't very safety conscious. How do you apparently. how do you repair a blow up boat? Well, we had to remove any entrapment or snag hazards. So there were a oh, few good. more modifications that happened to this after we, you know, presented our rough outline. <laughs> Tell me when you want the um, next slide. Please. Yeah, you can go to the next slide, uh, Liz. So this picture actually. Good lord, that's <laughs> more like Grand Rapids. Uh, yeah, they're they're legit rapids. They built. Um, there's a class three, and this I think is where they did the uh, ninety five Olympics, right? They were ninety six. No. Um, Atlanta. Uh, this uh, was an Olympic event. Good lord. No, the Olympics no, occurred in not Atlanta. Um, I don't. This this didn't open until two thousand and six. Oh, so there's no way. Never mind. Um, oh yeah, that was the Atlanta two thousand six Olympics. Yes, <laughs> the no, or the sorry. 1996 Olympics, the Charlotte, yeah, the Olympics. Olympics. the Charlotte 2006 Olympics. The Charlotte 2006 Olympics. I remember that. Hour and a half mark, guys. Hour and a half. I'm sorry. I'll just pretend like I didn't say anything. <laughs> this was built as an Olympic training venue, so they do train oh. the U.S. Olympic team here for whitewater competition events. So the whitewater kayaking and, and all that stuff. Um, and then, as just a, a venue, they do send rafting trips down, so you can. Just like you would go whitewater rafting, except it's in this kind of artificial environment that actually feels quite real. Um, and I'll tell you what, when you're in a little home-built uh, boat of sorts and you <laughs> get into that channel, it's, uh, there's quite a bit of whitewater in there. Um, you're so thinking, that's actually not me this, in the boat. This is that not is, a great idea. That is my <laughs> friend. came up with a stupid Steph idea. <laughs> in the boat. I actually fell out on that rapid right there because we got turned oh, around gosh. sideways <laughs> and backwards and I couldn't, there was nothing to hold on to. They removed all our snag hazards. So I had nothing to <laughs> snag myself on and I just slid right out. And they were very clear about once you fall out of the boat, please do not attempt to get back in. You're just exit, <laughs> exit the river. So exit gracefully. Yeah, exit gracefully, which I did. Um, and then Steph managed to stay in for quite a bit longer, but she didn't ever leave that area. She got stuck in an eddy. Um, and actually there was a kayaker on the side that was trying to push her back into the current for quite a while. And then I didn't see the exact moment when she fell out, but something happened and she also fell out of the boat. So our boat survived. <laughs> we did not, we weren't great boat captains, but we had a lot of fun doing it. So that was my Saturday. Excellent. Wow. Did, <laughs> and it's a huge it, event. It draws tons of people. The water's kind of cold, right? Uh, it was probably mid seventies. So that's yeah. It was actually okay. Did you manage to meet up with Eddie afterwards? With Eddie? Eddie's always there. Eddie is like... Yeah. <laughs> Several Eddies. Permanent fixture. Permanent fixture. You, you can always find him. He's in the same place. Multiple oh. places, actually, along the channel. Um, oh, the last time enough. I did it, we were stuck in one for, gosh, it must have been like 10 minutes. There were four of us in that boat, and we could just, just could not get ourselves out of the Eddie. Uh, but it's a fun time. It's a good event. It draws a huge crowd. You could probably tell from that last picture how many people Excellent. were lining yeah. the, uh, the banks and the... Yeah. Um, the little yeah, bridge that's right. there. Look great fun. So, uh, yeah, well done. Fun. We enjoyed it. So, 
Um, uh, Captain Nick, don't look now, but there's a huge dog behind you. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying not to dropped. engage it. Um, and then, as I say, I did a little bit of flying on Sunday. The weather was good in the morning, and then it got very cloudy for the afternoon, so that put a damper on things around noon. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of flying. It's the first yeah. flying I've done in quite a while, actually, like probably a month. I'm not sure why. Just marathons and travel and other stuff kind of gets in the way this time of year, but we'll be back to more Finally, you're a busy lady. Anna's asking you a question. Here. Yeah, I saw it. I did not see about that, but the... Oh, the Chicago Tell us what she's saying path. to us. Sorry. Uh, so, Steph, did you hear about the 90-year-old woman who set a record for her age group for the Chicago half, 33347? Oh, half. No. I thought that was the full. And I'm I thinking, know. I was like, that's a, that's a blazing fast time for a 90-year-old for a full marathon. Really fast. Um, I did not hear about it, but that's that's amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. So, okay. at 90, Sorry. I want to be I to doing I can take that long and, uh, to walk across the living room. And half marathons and things. <laughs> so. Anyway, that's... Did um, you hear what Liz said? I, I did. I was going to leave that for you to just put in, in post if you wanted to add that. Yeah, just, in. We'll let that go, yeah. but it'll it'll be in the audio it'll podcast. Appear. And you'll you'll chuckle. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um, Tim Van Ram. <laughs> Tim Van Ram says, that dog looks like he can't hold his liquor. <laughs> his liquor, I get it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, he's sticking his tongue out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, great to have you here, Steph. Yeah, yeah Steph. Be anything here. else uh, besides uh, being the boat captain and capsizing and all that kind of stuff? No, that's all no. I got. So that was I mean, a, what else could that you took up my want? Thursday. So I put in. Listen, I put in a lot of work for that boat. That we did two hours on Thursday, and about an hour of that was a planning meeting. Um, and then <laughs> over a two bottle hours, of wine. Two hours on Friday, where we assembled Liz? the boat in the parking lot. Yeah, and then yeah, I, I want to take a look at this boat. Two hours you on really Saturday put morning. A lot of you really put a lot of work into that? Oh, exactly. Two hours on Saturday morning to fix what? everything. <laughs> like, but it just so looks like, like a couple hours. of blown up rafts yeah. stacked on top of each other. Listen, some people just blew up inflatable pools <laughs> and use that. So, <laughs> well, it doesn't we really look like you did much more than that to me. Uh, that I'm took sorry. six hours. That's not fair. So for the finished oh, wait, product, wait, wait, it you took do about have some six hours, and I had to put those costumes that... together. Someone had to oh, put well, those epaulets on those t-shirts. Something. What about the duck? Is that duct tape oh, yeah. uh, that I see there? Oh, uh, okay. All right. I'll give you a break. We used probably in the end about five rolls of duct tape and one <laughs> and good. one leaf collection trash bag, like a really sturdy plastic well, one. Well, that, that DeLorean oh, in the background say leaf there. Blower there for a minute. <laughs> that DeLorean in the background there, I bet they were they were envious looking at your They your were. Boat. They were, but I think their DeLorean fell apart very quickly. And ours actually held together. It did. <laughs> Well, I think yours was designed to go in the water. It was, but it wasn't a guarantee that all that <laughs> duct tape helps. was going to hold it together. So. I think you needed Flex Seal. Yeah. Flex Seal, yeah. Flex oh, seal yeah. What's that guy's name? I, I should have Flex Sealed myself to the boat, so I couldn't have fallen out. That's <laughs> yeah. what I should have done. <laughs> <laughs> duct tape. I love it. Wait a minute. It was, well what was the extricating well done, a, aspect of making that boat safe? Well, fun. What did you say? Uh, snags and... You, there was two things you said. Remove the no snag hazards. Snag hazards and the other. Um, and the bar. Ex, I thought you said something about extricating. Uh, uh, maybe I'm just making things up. No, just remove <laughs> okay. removing snag and entrapment hazards. Entrapment. That's the one yeah. that starts Which with is an e. Really, kind of the same thing. That's what entrapment. Yeah. 
Nothing where you can get yourself okay. stuck into the boat where you would end up upside down and be stuck in the boat going down the channel. Breathing water. Yes, because it's not yeah. good to breathe water. Not good for we your health. We need to loop back to Captain Nick so he can talk about the cover art. Ah, uh, let's move back to Captain Nick and talk about the cover art. Oh, this was easy. This was an easy one. Do you want to put it up or will I, Jeff? You do the first one, and then when we zoom in, okay. Liz, I'll, okay. I'll pop mine in there. We came <laughs> up with the show title in during the show because it was part of this story, wasn't it, uh, where yeah. the undercarriage collapsed inside this. There you go. Air Canada's at it again. Uh, but we had, there was some fine alliteration, which we just um, enhanced a little bit. So it you became think? blackened bogey beam bushing bore, boiling brake base busts, blowing Barkhausen benchmarks. Brilliant! Uh, the trick was to get Barkhausen in there. And uh, I have to say, Barkhausen is a test, and you try finding a test uh, or a synonym for that that begins with B. It's very hard. There aren't many well, of those. Anyway, it was all a bit of fun. Nice job. Damper thing. What's yeah. that? That's our new shimmy damper thing. Oh, the new shimmy uh, damper. Indeed. Yeah, that's what happens yeah. if you don't service your shimmy damper. That's exactly right. Now, I did, I did put the show uh, number in there, but it's not hard to find. Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, on the side of the tire. Oh, well done. Yeah. So uh, like most tires, there's a, a code on it. And it, the, uh, this one said APG hyphen 58X9. So there you go. 589. So we thought it was going to be extra long, but then. <laughs> <laughs> not so you'd be. Yeah, not so. You, that was a great one, Jeff. Anyway, so that was good. That was easy. Thanks for that. Although finding a, an undercarriage bogey on uh, uh, mid-journey wasn't easy. I had to uh, – it gave me one wheel or one pair of wheels, and I had to duplicate it with another one to make it look like a bogey. But there you go. Anyway, uh, looking forward Beautiful. to a good one Beautiful. for this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, whatever the show title will be. Indeed. Well, Not sure we know fun. yet. I'm sorry, I was a little distracted here. I guess um, uh, this new uh, operating system, Sonoma, has something interesting when you're sharing something. It has a like a new menu that I've never seen before. I was distracted by it. Squirrel. Anyway. Have you seen the yeah, way exactly. it makes your desktop completely disappear if you click on the background? Yep. That used to be uh, like a <laughs> function key where you – like a function F2 or something like that. That would like move all the windows out of the way and then move them back. I can do it with yeah, hot little, corners. Like move yeah. my mouse to the corner and everything goes away and comes back. But I said that's It's up a little disconcerting this. though when it first happens and you're not expecting it. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what, what I thought. <laughs> oh, well, where's all my oh, stuff no. gone? I know it's crashed. <laughs> Everything's gone. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Coffee fund. Coffee fund. Okay. Let's uh, hit this one here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. Yes, please. I love coffee. I love tea. Oops. I love the APG community. Sing it, Liz. Coffee, coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. It's a coffee fund. Your opportunity 
to feel good about yourself and give us money. <laughs> it's win-win. It's uh, value for value. If you receive value for what we work hard, and I mean, we really do. I know it doesn't look like it, but <laughs> we do work hard on this every week. <laughs> think about how bad it would be if we didn't. Exactly. Just, just something to think about. Consider anyway, um, so if you receive value for that, then uh, give us some value back if you have have the... Um, resources to do that and uh so how how would you you're asking do that you, you can tell i'm kind of vamping a little bit because we don't have any new uh contrib- contributors or patrons since the last episode but that's okay we the ones that we have oh look at the sad puppy right there oh look at you've made that puppy so sad um anyway if you uh, want to be amongst these really really great people who uh, give us some value for the value that they receive. A couple of different ways to do that. Uh, one is called the Airline Pilot Guide um, Coffee. No, AP. What do we call it? The Coffee Fund Classic Method. That's what we call it. Um, and uh, that's basically a PayPal donation page. And you can do like one every once in a while or every month or uh, whatever. Uh, you can even make it a recurring uh, kind of thing. And um, so that's there for you. And then we also have uh, something set up with uh, Patreon. You can, you can become a patron, not a Patreon. You can become a patron via Patreon. And uh, they have a beautiful website there. And you can pledge a certain amount per episode. And you can specify now, only only this much, though. Don't, don't take too much from me and uh so yeah we have that thing uh going on as well so we do love our contributors and our patrons and if you want to join them please visit our website airlinepilotguy.com and you'll find information about how you can do that and uh trust me you'll be glad you did and we will too Captain, incoming message. All righty. We have some feedback from Eugene uh, in Germany. Uh, thanks for keeping us. I think he's in Germany, right? Um, thanks for keeping us entertained on a weekly basis, at least for up to three hours or as long as Liz is not cutting Jeff's mic. Thanks, Liz. Otherwise, <laughs> it would be a long six-hour show. <laughs> No jokes aside, um, every single second is well spent with your great podcast and community. Well, thank you, Eugene. Uh, I hope you're all well and healthy as the cold season is approaching us. The COVID season too, I guess. Uh, While standing in the morning traffic jam today, listening to episode 585, the feedback about airplane nicknames and Captain Nick's response, no pun intended, on the A320, uh, one being tasteless, got my full attention. As Nick was not sharing it in the live show, I had to Google it. And yes, Nick was darn right about this one. <laughs> Aside from this, I <laughs> yes. stumbled over a list of many airplane nicknames here. And it gives us a uh, URL, which we'll include in the show notes. Uh, first of all, uh, there are some Airbus, or there is some Airbus slash Boeing bashing potential here. Uh, Captain Nick, what about quote the humpback for the uh, Boeing seven forty seven? Actually, I don't think that's a derogatory 
um, term for the sub four. Or Rick, what do you think about a four person hair dryer for the A340? And that would be the one of the early models of the 340, right, Nick? Right. Yes, indeed. The 600 was far from underpowered. Yeah. And that's what was it? The 300 that was called the four engine well, and, four and person then hair dryer? It was, yeah, it was the, the Dash 300 or the Dash 200, depending on. But they, okay. once with the C2 engines, CFM 56 C2s, they quite mm. quickly uh, changed those to C4 engines, which were much better. Uh, and of course, you know, the Dash 600. I'm always was, looking for uh, to C4 engines too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Yes, if you've got the 340 and you're only C2, you go, <laughs> I've climbed in the wrong aeroplane. Uh, let's see. Or uh, this is back to uh, Eugene's uh, feedback. Or Beach Bonanza as Dr. Killer, uh, Nick Camacho. Um, well, I think isn't it the isn't it the V tailed uh, Doctor Killer? That's what it I always remember. It is the, the V tailed Bonanza typically is referred the V tailed Bonanza, the ones that the doctors always buy, right? Yeah, and then it's cool. It's and generally um, too much for them. it's too much for them because they have a lot of more money than they have flying experience <laughs> in a lot of cases. So um, more money than sense. Yeah. So. Or more sense than <laughs> what is more it? Sense than more skill. sense. More than, money than sense. I don't know. Or All those things. Something like that. Or you know these doctors. Sense. <laughs> um, we all know Dr. Steph is flying the twattercopter or slug, sometimes for jumper dumper operations. So apparently the slug stuff. is the Cessna 207, which I've never actually flown. That's a oh. weird airplane. It looks like a weird cross between, it couldn't decide if it was going to be a Cessna 182 or a 208, and they put a piston engine on it, I'm pretty sure. So. Oh. It kind of does it's look like a slug. It has a performance of a slug. A slug, yeah. So I've never flown okay. one of those, though. As far as I know, I don't think the, does the caravan have any nicknames. I don't, I just call it a caravan. Hmm. Hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, but there are also other funny names like Diesel 9 for the DC 9. Yeah, I like that one. Or the famous Mad Dog for the MD 80s. Uh, one Filthy for the Cessna 150. Never heard of that one. I haven't either, but. Yeah. Okay. That's funny though. It is funny. Uh, some of these I think are either a little bit different or European. some that I've never heard of because this is the website is uh, b737.org.uk. Mm. So oh, that might the be problem. the reason why. Yeah, that's the problem for sure. Uh, strangely, I did not find a Boeing 717 or, for example, the Mooney M20 or Cessna Caravan. Does it mean those are flawless and decent and humble airplanes? No. Yes. Uh, that, unlike the, the class clowns, will never get a nickname? Or is there just a void to be filled? Yeah, I think the latter. Well, um, Angry Puppy. Angry Puppy, yeah. yeah. Or the Mini Dog, mm -hmm. uh, that I like to call it. Uh, let's see. What are your... Um, Okay, so he's asking us what our favorite nicknames are, I, I think for airplanes, right? And uh, he says, thanks for the great show and talent. Talents, Douglas. Eugene from the southwest of Germany. There you go. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not going to go through everyone because it starts with uh, the uh, it's alpha listing from A to Z. I did get Z, a kick out prefer. of the uh, listed nickname for the Casa, which I've actually done some skydiving jumps out of. I can't repeat okay. it on here, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not so. In other words, it's not an an endear a term of. It's not a no. Mm-mm. It's a <laughs> Cessna one fifty. The cesspit. The cesspit. That's funny. <laughs> wow. Um, I noticed there are an awful lot for the Phantom. The F4 oh, Phantom. Yeah? I hadn't gotten that far down. Double yeah, Ugly, the Lead Sled, Flying <laughs> Anvil, St. Louis Slugger, Flying Brick, Snoopy, Rhino, Old Smokey, uh, Thrust Over Aerodynamics, World Leading Distributor of MIG Parts, Grey Geese, <laughs> Luftwaffe Diesel. Uh, f- uh, I can't see that one. Fliegende uh, Ziegelstein, oh. Flying Brick. Uh, and and there's another one, air defense diesel. Uh, but I noticed there isn't one. There's not a single nickname for the F-18 Hornet. Mm. We'll is put that, it on the list with the caravan above? as a perfect airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Nothing <laughs> it's to the F-18. Okay. They're gr- really suitable grouped together, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> Yes. The, uh, <laughs> s- the s- Boeing 727 has a bunch of them. Three-holer, trijet, trisaurus. I take offense to that one. I've never heard I of that. I like that one. That's uh, good. <laughs> triple chrome-plated stovepipe. Never heard of that one. Jurassic jet. I've heard that. Ear blaster, uh, the scooter. You know, lead sled, uh, the term that you just used for the uh, F-4, uh, I think is a nickname for a lot of airplanes. The one that comes to mind when you say lead sled is the 737, the original, uh, the OG, the 200 um, Boeing uh, 737, uh, lead sled, slug, fluff, all kinds of nicknames for that thing. The flying speed oh. brake is one of my favorites. Um, it wasn't very they've fast. They've missed out one here, you know. They, they've got short sky van. They call it the Whispering Nissan Hut. Which was one of those wartime corrugated iron huts mm-hmm. that we had in the UK. Mm-hmm. But they don't call it the Irish Concorde. Yes, which that's the most the famous one for it. Brilliant. <laughs> the the, for the shorts three, which one? Yeah, they do for the shorts 360 is the Irish Concorde. Oh, do they? Yeah, the Sky uh, Band is yeah, the, it was faster. smaller, <laughs> less aerodynamic. <laughs> it got uh, closer to supersonic. I've sat in the right seat of a Sky Van. That is a interesting aeroplane. Let's just say, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Some of these are great, though, because, oh, there's a, the whistling shit house. Um, but <laughs> I think that's a good one uh, for the Supermarine <laughs> Strand Ra. But I... I <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for the Argosy. And now you guys wouldn't know the Argosy. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, Twin boom uh, transport aeroplane with straight wing, uh, two, four inches, can't remember. But it had a, a bulbous nose, which would open up to allow cargo. And it had a tiny little black pimple of a radome <laughs> on the front. So, And because it leaked dreadfully, it was called the whistling tit. Um, but I don't... Like a bird. <laughs> don't see that one there either. Of course, after yes. the... Yeah, after the bird. Here's Tim's one. Tim Van Ram's got one. Tim Van Ram has a good one. Uh, Sully's Ark for the A320. <laughs> Very good. Very good. That is a good one. Anyway, send in. If they don't see it on the list, send it in. Send it in, and uh, we can we can keep this going. And uh, again, look at the show notes for this uh, URL, and you can see all the Understand interesting yourself. names for various things. 
various aircraft. Mm. Anyway, um, yeah, the one for the MD-95 never, ever saw that one or heard of that one. That's uh, that must be a British thing, apparently. Um, what was it? I mean, I know who uh, that person you flew is. Flew as a trainer, <laughs> the Tweedy Bird. What was the proper name for uh, that? Um, actually, I don't think they had a formal name. Uh, we call it the Tweet, uh, but oh, okay. I don't think that there was. It was just called the Cessna T thirty seven. But I'm pretty oh, sure right, it didn't okay. actually have an official name. Um, gotcha. Six thousand pound uh, whistle or noisemaker. Um, <laughs> Okay. Anyway, uh, let's see. Let's move on. Tweet is what Wikipedia yeah, but, says. Yeah, but I don't. Again, I don't. Th- I know that that's what everybody refers to it as, but I don't think they ever actually <laughs> called it that. I'm not going to say be- this. I, I'm not going to say this on the show. I couldn't. Thank you. But look up. Uh, look in the list. PA44. Everybody's going to want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're 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 not going to <laughs> we're not do that. We're not going to say one. that on the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway, that tickles me. I guess we should better. <laughs> better move better. on. Uh, Just know that there are some nicknames that are not very flattering for some of these aircraft. Yeah. Reader discretion yes, is advised. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ah, darn it! I can't find it. All right. That's let's what continue. She said. <laughs> with this from Carl. Uh, try this on, ca- I'm trying this on Captain Jeff's retirement flight. Okay, so it's uh, it's a cartoon. Uh, it's a visual thing. Uh, this captain could well be Captain Jeff. Any FOs named Steve that might have inspired this? And uh, so we're looking at this cartoon at the top, starts the first frame. I call shotgun. This is a passenger. And then that. Yeah. yeah, passenger yelling this to the uh, pilots in the in the cockpit, and they're kind of looking at this passenger with a little disdain. And then uh, the captain. And I should say that the captain uh, does have a very Captain Jeff esque mustache. Really, he does. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so he's the captain says Steve, and then Steve says, "You can't call shotgun. This this is an airplane." And I say to him, he called shotgun. Like, come on. Got it. That's the, the rule. Rules is rules. Uh, rules is rules. So the last frame shows uh, Steve, the co-pilot, sitting in the in the passenger compartment uh, in, in a middle <laughs> no, seat to boot. No less. <laughs> he does, With his hat uh, all on. The other, he's got his hat on. Mo- yeah, he's got his hat on. And most of the other people have smiles in their face. But, but good old Steve, he, he does not. Steve's not. Happy. Looks like his eyes have glazed over a bit too. Yeah, yeah you're right. He's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a good one. Shotgun. I call shotgun. All right. Okay. Let's see here. This is from Dominic. Uh, Airbus versus Boeing. Chat GPT. Oh, this is a good one. Uh, hi, Jeff and Nick. Uh, a friend uploaded the, and the rest of you too. A friend uploaded these onto a group chat, so I thought I'd pass them on. Apparently, the brief to the AI, uh, artificial intelligence image bot, was, quote, to draw Airbus versus Boeing. 
hilarity ensues. Hope you're all well. Kind regards, Dom, Dominic O'Kelly in Sydney, Australia. So <laughs> we have the first one, uh, which is depicting the uh, Airbus uh, <laughs> flying uh, kind of low by, about, uh, about to touch a down. Pass. A low pass or maybe about to land. And, like uh, lot, <laughs> and it's in Air France colors, Air France-ish colors. And, uh, yeah, so describe, um, Stephanie, uh, what, 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 what are we seeing here? So, uh, yes, a low pass being performed by the airplane. There's also a lot of, um, French looking pastries and breads in the baguettes. air and on the ground. <laughs> yeah, there are. Baguettes and croissants and mm-hmm. other Croissant. things. And a lot uh-huh. of um, very. I can see a pan of chocolat. Very, yeah, very stereotypically dressed Frenchmen in <laughs> lots of berets. Lots with of berets. Lots of stripes. And striped stripes, shirts yeah. and scarves, uh-huh. and everyone's wearing white pants. <laughs> and beret, um, yeah, yeah. And white they're pants, all yeah. throwing baguettes at either each other or in the air or yelling or, or cheering or smile. I'm not sure. It's a, it they look interpreted. happy. Yeah. It might be a happy, it's I almost think. like a pillow fight, but with baguettes and an yeah. airplane. Okay, that might so be what's happening here. One. Okay. Now let's see the Boeing version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. So we have a Boeing jet in the background with a huge American flag flying. Huge. <laughs> The, and, everything is uh, covered Nick, in like American flags for some reason. Maybe Nick can uh, oh, yes. describe this for our audience. Oh, this <laughs> is great. I mean, uh, it's, there's airplanes everywhere. There's airplanes in the sky, and it looks like it's being in an awful midair somewhere because that airplane over the right hand side looks very badly <laughs> twisted. But anyway, the feature airplane is in beautiful in red, white, and blue, and the huge flag, and then picnicking on the apron. Uh, in front of this airplane are a huge number of... Um, Their physiques are atypical. very much the same as those Frenchmen, I think. <laughs> yes, atypical, very no. happy people uh, eating uh, a meal, Large a picnic. Atypical, we're not happy? Hamburgers the size of beach balls or even larger. Uh, they've got huge drinks. They've got great big dishes of uh, French fries. And um, they're all fairly robust people. Is that a good way of putting it? Yes. I'm I'm concerned about the the, uh, picnickers uh, closest to the airplane. They seem to have picnicked too much. Uh, yeah, indeed. There's a huge trail of vomit <laughs> and lying, <laughs> and he's lying flat on his back. Um, uh, looks completely they've exhausted. <laughs> yeah, they've indulged. But, um, they've over oh Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Pretty good, actually. Yeah. But everything's bigger in America. It is. Apparently. It is. Yeah. Mm. Stomachs and uh, burgers. But she's... It's a very funny pair of pictures. Yeah. <laughs> like the, Tim, excuse me, is that your pickle? <laughs> uh, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, interesting. Um, thank you, Dominic, for, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, okay. Uh, I guess now would be a good time for us to play this, uh, this episode's plane one. tale. I love this plane tale. Old, the old pilot comes back with another edition of the RAF Form 414, this one being Volume 24. 
Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plain tales. RAF form 414, volume 24. After I landed my aircraft, I climbed out of the Hornet with the cold realisation that I might have flown my last sortie. The spinning sensation had ceased, and the sortie had gone beautifully. It was almost as if it had been a bad dream. I got through the debrief, and the rest of the day went fine, but in the quiet of the evening, after the kids were asleep, I told Jilly what had happened. My worst fears bubbled up, and I wanted to pretend everything was all right, but deep down I knew otherwise. We talked it through, but we both knew I had to face it. I picked up the phone. The senior Air Force doctor on the base was a scuba diving buddy of mine, so I rang him at home. I apologised for calling him so late, explained what was going on and told him that if I didn't tell him now, I might not want to in the morning. He was very professional about it, told me to come over first thing, and then drop the bombshell that I had expected. Just so you're clear, he said, you're grounded till further notice. I actually slept quite well, considering. I cleared my conscience and put my problems into the hands of the professionals. When the sun rose and I wandered over to the station medical centre, I had almost resigned myself to a life without flying. There were other worthwhile jobs in the RAF. Oh, come on, who was I kidding? I was invited in to see the doc, and after explaining my tendency to walk into walls and the spinning sensation that I had suffered, he asked me to sit up on a trolley bed. Taking control, he lay me back prone and then turned my head towards him. Immediately, his surgery set off spinning around me faster than I could ever roll a fighter, even a little gnat. Instinctively, I shut my eyes, but nope, he wanted me to keep them open and look at him. Wow, he muttered, and all of a sudden I became a guinea pig, as he called his colleagues in from their own offices. When all were assembled, he announced that they were going to practice the Dick's Hallpike manoeuvre, and everyone had a go at bending me up and down, turning my head, and exclaiming at the nystagmus I displayed as my eyes began flicking rapidly back and forth, trying to track the imagined movement my brain was detecting. It was only when I asked for a bucket to be sick into that the circus act came to an end. By now, I had decided that the next time we dived together, I was taking a pair of pruning shears so I could cut his airlines but I was now firmly in the hands of the medical profession. I wandered back to the squadron and sat down with the boss to explain the situation and wipe my name off the programme board. Before long, I had an appointment with a civilian ENT specialist in town, which was a godsend. Not being in the military, he was considerably more discreet than I was used to, and when I got back to the UK... Nobody ever mentioned my vertigo ever again. 
I was put through a battery of tests, which included wearing electrodes on my head, finding my ears and nose with my eyes shut, walking around in the dark, balancing on one foot, and having water of different temperatures squirted into my ears, to name just a few. It took a week or so, but the conclusion was that I had been hit by a virus. The Epstein-Barr virus was the likely culprit, which chose to attack the balance organs in one of my ears. It's a common enough virus, but had got through my defences, probably because I had allowed myself to become overly fatigued, running a major exercise the previous month. Long days, short nights, and the pressure had apparently taken its toll. I was prescribed complete rest, and several bottles of an old-fashioned health tonic full of vitamins, calcium, sodium, manganese, snake oil, and a little alcohol. The virus had already done its damage, and there was no fixing that. All I had to do was to get back to full fitness and let my brain deal with the situation, which apparently usually took about three months. The brain is an amazing thing. Not just mine, but everyone's. Damage the inner ear on one side, and the conflicting signals lead to vertigo, but given enough time, the brain rebalances and works out how to cope with the new situation. Two months later, I felt back to normal, or at least as normal as I would ever be, and bored beyond belief. The RAAF doctors wanted to keep me on the ground for another month or so, but my boss, JK, bless his little cotton socks, unlike the RAF, had the power to override the medical advice. So, in the last few days of May, two months almost to the day when I thought my career was disappearing down a whirlpool, I clambered into a two-seater with Mukai in the back for a somewhat curtailed shakedown trip when Bitching Betty told us that we had engine low oil pressure, so we came home on one engine. We tried again the next day, and then the boss sat in the back to put me through my paces and declared me fit-ish. I had to fly several more trips with a safety pilot in the back, which included Wood Duck, of recent Plain Tales fame, who was then a pilot officer, with a rank stripe so thin it became invisible at three paces. Now a group Captain Aratache, he's covered in gold braid. By now I should have been coming to the end of my time in Oz, but my tour had been extended by six months. Whoopee! And I had my blue letter. About halfway through my time with 77 Squadron, I'd elected to take the C exam, a prerequisite for promotion above Flight Lieutenant. Had I been promoted earlier, I couldn't have been given my Australian exchange tour, but once I was in country, I was safe. Having deviously passed the exam, thanks partly to an eight-hour time difference and a good friend back home, I was now eligible, and on the next raft of promotions, I was gazetted and duly received the formal blue letter informing me of my advancement. 
the London Gazette isn't so much a newspaper as an official journal of the government. Around since 1665, it's the oldest continuously published newspaper in the UK and contains such information as the royal assent to bills of Parliament, granting of honours, or in my case, promotion of officers of the armed forces, hence being gazetted. There wasn't a job for me in Australia at that rank, so I became a sort of squadron leader without portfolio. Friends of, but not quite so chummy with my old mates as I now ranked as a senior officer. They took this in their stride, and in a perfectly Australian way, dubbed me Sir Plus, or more formally, Sir Plus to Requirements. We carried on with the exciting flying that had been a constant throughout my time on 77. We spent some time dropping high-explosive Mark 82 500-pounders and Mark 84 2000-pounders, the largest of the Mark 80 series general-purpose bombs, that came off the pylons with a reassuring clang and lurch so you knew it had definitely dropped. Then we had a month brushing up on air defence tactics before deploying up to Darwin for Exercise Kangaroo 89 then the biggest Australian military peacetime exercise since World War II. On the way, we stopped at Townsville to refuel, and on departure, I got the shock of my life. Climbing out, I suddenly heard the dulcet tones of bitching Betty, announcing, Engine fire left! Engine fire left! Immediately followed by a more shocking warning of, Engine fire right! Engine fire right. My eyes immediately went to the mirrors, expecting to see a massive smoke trail coming from the rear of the aircraft. Meanwhile, Betty went on to inform me of an APU fire. APU fire. Followed by bleed air warnings, both left and right, low fuel, hot computers, low altitude, and flight control failures. By now, the penny had dropped, and the familiar sequence of warnings was apparent. The voice alert test has somehow activated itself. I waited patiently for Betty to read through the list and stop, but no such luck, as she started again from the beginning. All the time this was going on, I couldn't hear a thing over the radio, as the warning system audio had priority and I was transmitting blind, hoping that something was going out. I turned back and flew a visual recovery to Townsville, entered the circuit and landed after some kind controller fired a green flare across my nose. Shutting down, the engineers wandered over to assist, but try as they might, they couldn't replicate the fault. After 20 minutes of constantly yelling at me, Betty was now sulking. We all assumed that the shutdown had reset the warning computer and it had rebooted without any errors, which, on my subsequent transit to Darwin, was confirmed. The exercise proved to be great fun, with plenty of combat against F-16s, tanking from KC-130 Hercules and a good downtown hotel to live in.
Back home at Willie, we had another month of live firing. This time it was air-to-air gunnery against a banner towed by a Learjet, which I've already talked about in a previous tale, but then we tried strafe from a dive angle of 30 degrees, which was new, before pooping off some missiles. Having lots of previous experience of that sort of thing, I ended up acting as the flying range safety officer, accompanying the firing aircraft to ensure that the square of ocean nominated as the firing range was clear of ships and safe to use, as well as confirming that the firer was correctly locked to the drone's flare or radar reflector and not the drone itself. Uh, An expensive mistake. It was quite a taxing job, first sweeping the full volume of the range for ships and aircraft in time for the drone to arrive, and then formating closely on the firer to make sure that the ranges that they were giving corresponded to the towed decoy and not the Jindavik before authorising the launch. Watching the sidewinders and sparrows leap off the firing hornets, it was always a tremendous sight as the ordnance streaked away, accelerating to over Mach 2 in a few aircraft lengths and then disappearing off into the distance. As the weeks counted down and I got closer and closer to my departure date, I was faced with a dilemma. When it came time to head home, my squadron was going to be in Malaysia on our regular deployment and I should really have been there with them. But that would have left Jilly at home to pack our belongings, clean our married quarter and do the formal march out inspection and then head back to the UK halfway around the world with two small boys all on her own. As she had so many times in our marriage, she tackled the tasks ahead of her with determination whilst I set off north. It turned out she did a lot more, of course. Having arrived in the UK before me, she got herself from the transport base at RAF Brides Norton over to our new posting at RAF Coningsby, where she dealt with the bureaucracy who informed her that there was no accommodation. She finally accepted a quarter at the nearby RAF Cranwell, argued her way into one of an appropriate size, and moved in. I, on the other hand, was heavily involved in my swan song, flying copious amounts of combat and low-level strike missions, which often included dropping ordnance on a range built on a small island called Song Song. A couple of things to talk about here. First, I was hit by lightning during a high-level transit in cloud back to our base at Butterworth. The strike knocked out my radar, which I'd been using to keep position on our leader since we'd entered cloud in a trail formation and were now keeping station with the radar. That gave him the problem of how to keep his formation safe and separated since I couldn't see anyone. We had a lead who was working up, so I took it upon myself to negotiate a new level to stay safe and manoeuvred until I had a good degree of separation behind the formation. They landed back at Butterworth, but by the time I got onto the instrument approach, there was another thunderstorm over the airfield and I was getting a bit tight on fuel. 
The rain was so fierce, beating down on the canopy, that I couldn't hear air traffic. But anyway, at 200 feet over the lights, all I could see were more lightning bolts pounding the ground around me and a wall of water. I went around, climbing and turning onto a downwind heading, when I popped out of the side of a huge Q-Nim into clear blue air and bright sunshine. Reluctant to re-enter Dante's Inferno, I set course for the International Civilian Airport on the island of Penang, about 14 miles away, and plopped down there. Half an hour after diverting, a little convoy of military vehicles brought our engineers over to have a look at the aircraft. The lightning had entered through the radome, flashed around the cockpit a bit, including leaping through the stick on my right arm, which tingled and went a bit numb, before departing through the right tailplane, mangling part of the carbon fibre into a floppy, feathery mess of graphite fibres. Sengo, the senior engineering officer, said I could fly at home as it was, so long as I kept it slow. The boys stuck some fuel in it and off I went, landing without further incident. After its little sulk, even the radar fired up. I mentioned our bombing range on the island of Song Song because when we used it, we had to provide a pilot from the squadron to take command of the facility for a week and act as the range safety officer. The guys who did all the work were a party of Royal Malaysian Air Force troops commanded by a sergeant. Song Song was quite remote and a real tropical island, so with my chaps in tow and a big box of rations, I started the day-long journey via minivan, two ferry boats and the official Malaysian Air Force launch, which we used to chase off local fishermen and take us to another island nearby which sported some accommodation. I didn't have much to do except sit in a wooden tower overlooking the range targets, drink tea made five times a day by the chaps, and man the radio, clearing our aircraft in and passing them their scores. The best bit was suffering several times a day the low-level passes everyone made over the range hut before departing back to Butterworth. I'd taken a boombox out with me and played a mixtape of suitable beat-up music over the radio for them, from the Dam Busters March to the Top Gun theme, to accompany these amazing flypasts. The best bits were after we finished our work for the day and returned to our billets on Pulau Bidan, about five miles away. There I enjoyed chatting to the Malay chaps, eating my meals with them and together watching the sun set on our little tropical island. Afterwards I would sit with a book, listening to the hiss of the paraffin lamps, whilst always on guard for the huge Asian monitor lizards who delighted in rummaging through our garbage at night and could be heard all round the building. Then the fateful day came for my final flight. I see it was a mission to bounce a formation of two Hornets and two Malay F-5 Tiger IIs. The boys had decked my aircraft out with a suitable decoration since my own beloved A-21-4 had been left back at Willie. After another fabulous afternoon of flying, I was given carte blanche to beat up the airfield 
but it was with a heavy heart that I whistled over the detachment headquarters and pulled up into the circuit to land. 48 hours later, and 30 degrees centigrade lower, I was back in Blighty to rejoin the long-suffering Jilly in time for Christmas and to start my conversion course onto the F3 Tornado. I was back in the real world, and my heart was heavy with sadness at leaving Australia. I also had the words of advice from my many Australian friends still ringing in my ears. Remember, the tornado banks as if to turn. Aww. It's not nice. Hey, what, that um, on the side there, the uh, NTP, was that for uh, not too good of a pilot? What does that stand for? <laughs> um, is that... Nick the Pom. <laughs> that was, you know, oh, the, really? the Australians yeah, yeah, yeah. called people from Britain Poms. Uh, and uh, I was Nick, so I was called Nick the Pom while I was out there. Ah, okay. They just plastered that right over whoever's yeah, they, other's I, name. They, <laughs> that sticky day glow. Yeah, exactly right. Because I'm not sure whose airplane that was. Steve Smith's, I think. Uh, That's what it looks like. Kind but, of uh, yeah. there, maybe. Steven Smith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that way, yeah. the bright orange, they you know they can keep track of you better. <laughs> so you got hit by lightning. That, that, that really explains a lot, Nick. The uh, get, get, Getting a, a, a bolt of lightning go, go through you. Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, actually, it, I didn't really think about it, but my hand, my arm was quite um, affected for a, the rest of the day after that. <laughs> but I blithely climbed in and flew it back to Butterworth regardless. Uh, it all se- seemed to work. It just might more my feeling had gone. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, that was uh, it was just three years of complete um joy for me being out in australia uh partly because i was out of the air force and uh you know you're like a guest in a foreign country and they're looking after you and uh treating you uh much better than you were normally treated at home um and uh they they were such gentlemen they really were uh and i i so enjoyed my time over there and of course the aircraft was fantastic uh, sadly from the next three years is a is the other side of the coin, as it were. I'd been pr- mm. promoted but and put onto an airplane that I really didn't want to fly. And uh, I found uh, that, uh, you know, the Air Force and I were growing apart. But that'll be in the next story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Looking forward to Volume 25. Uh, uh, as indeed. always, just fascinating um, stories. Thanks very much. Good old Jilly. I love Jilly. Oh, she was such a trooper. You know, you couldn't ask for a a better service wife, a better of a wife of any kind, but uh, particularly when you're in the service and you know that there are so many things that the poor wives have to put up with um, in order for you to have a a proper career. Um, You know, it's really tough. And she was fantastic. And she's still having to put up with you. And still is. Yes. Yes. I think being retired has put an extra strain on our relationship. But, uh, you know, I I live in hope that that, uh, she'll stick with me through thick and thin. Ah, 
Very good. We have some time left over, our Excellent. producer is telling us, for uh, some more feedback. So uh, let's see. Uh, remind me again where – oh, I know where we are. We're uh, in number, number six. six. Uh, this six, is from yeah. Doug. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty good. I, okay. I did miss this entirely, and I don't think – any of us really should have missed this, but perhaps we were no, tired. I, or you know, when I was reading it, a lot of the yeah. times uh, people don't know this, but I, the first time that I'm reading it is the first time that I'm seeing it. I mean, <laughs> like on the show is like the first time I'm reading it. And wh while I was reading this piece of feedback, I'm thinking to myself, that sounds familiar. Is it? Is he talking about Bluto from? National Lampoon's Animal House. Okay, let's read it. Uh, APG team, I think you were had by Sam in APG 587. John Bluto Blutarski is a character from the 1978 movie National Lampoon's Animal House. In a famous scene where uh, he's trying to rally his fraternity brothers, he says, did we give up after the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> 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 Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over? In all fairness, some of the other brothers in the room said, Germans? Forget it. He's rolling. <laughs> um, and then he gave us a little link to see that excerpt of uh, National Lampoon's Animal House. Uh, he says, by the way, Blutarski went on to be a United States senator, not a doctor. Ah, okay. So Doug is correcting you, Sam. And uh, yeah, Sam kind of did, did get me. Uh, there, the 50% mark. but it was like one of those things where, you know, you're, as you're, as you're reading it, you're thinking, wait a minute. I mean, is that no? And I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to read it straight. And I'm sure that one of my co-hosts will. You know, <laughs> we started it, talking about history <laughs> and I kind of. So and then, I'm yeah, sorry. and then because nothing was said about it, I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe that really the guy's name really is Blutarski. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I I'd forgotten about the uh, his um, uh, his uh, you know rallying his fraternity yeah, brothers. Uh, All saying, I remember is uh, did we? Yeah, I'm a zit. Get I need it. to I need to watch it again. Oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah, to kind good. of remind myself. Yeah, and the so, whole toga yeah. stuff. Yeah, Doug Sam did 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 get us. Oh well, it was a good. One. That's what makes this show so much fun, though. Um, all right. Uh, continuing on with, uh, this one from KFC make good winglets, <laughs> mad dog quirks. Hello again, APG gals and guys. I saw a video on YouTube a while back about an MD 80 captain explaining some interesting quirks regarding the mad dog. Yeah. This one comes up every year or two. Uh, captain Jeff, I'd be interested to know what MD 80 quirks you've experienced in your career so far. And out of those quirks, which was your most and least favorite? Furthermore, I would love to pose this question to the other APG crew members for the aircraft they have flown or currently flying. I'm still loving the show. and Oh, whew, good thing. And I'm glad you like my name, other than it being a mouthful. And um, KFC, uh, oh, that, that'll be your, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. Uh, you're not sensing my um, sarcasm at all, I guess, when I said I really like your name. Um, anyway, he's up in the middle of night in Australia. Yeah, I know. Is he, show. is he here on our, he's usually with us he on was. our live audience. He, he was. was, it's like, yeah, very, very late or early, uh, depending on your perspective in Australia. Um, so yeah, mad dog quirks. I forgot what the guy's name is, but that, 
um, video is super popular where he kind of sits there and kind of um, is uh, reminiscing about the uh, airplane that he's about to leave and move on to something bigger and better. Um, and uh, But he uh, does point out several of the uh, interesting things about the the DC, uh, the Diesel Nine, and its um, variants, including the uh, MD80, and uh, one, of course, that he points out. And most people see his video and go, "What? That can't be right. That can't be true." Is the um, the standby compass and where they located the standby compass uh, in most aircraft that I've flown and most people fly, the standby compass is usually, uh, at least in the older ones where they actually had a wet compass, uh, what do they call them? Whiskey compass, standby compass. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, I think they're all electronic, right? Um, um, even in the... Uh, we have uh, regular compasses. A regular a regular yeah. uh, wh- wet wet compass. Yeah. whiskey compass or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, they'll usually put them like in the on the center post uh, of the windscreen if there's Usually kind a of place like in your line of sight it. so that you can yeah. reference it as Which a would be primary instrument yeah well so and now some people argue about this i'm sure there have been many many fights regarding this as well but we're not really sure exactly what the truth is uh some people claim that oh the engineers uh completely forgot about put installing a, a standby compass in the jet and so they thought, okay, we don't have any room up here anymore, so let's slap it above the first officer's head uh, up there in that little nook area up there. Uh, but uh, so how are, you know, as Steph mentioned, usually it's somewhere in front of you. So, you know, you want to, you, you're flying the airplane and, and if you're using a, a standby compass at this point, uh, things are going bad. Uh, you're having a bad day. Um, so it's an emergency situation, most likely. Um, so you don't want to be, um, you know, looking around, you know, and, and looking up to see what heading you're going. Uh, so they put these little mirrors uh, on the on the uh, instrument panel, the top of the dashboard there, and you can you can crank them. They they are hinged. You can, and they're only about what um, three inches wide by an inch tall. I'm not sure what that is in millimeters uh, or centimeters, but uh, it's not a very large little mirror. But you you fold it up and then you angle it so that it's pointing back toward that little opening up above the first officer's head. And then there's another mirror that is pointing and angled so that you can see the standby compass, which is actually facing the rear of the airplane. And there's a little light up there. And it's a requirement that you check that uh, each and every flight uh, during your pre-flight, um, and so you know you was now. I think most people find the little mirrors that you you know you pull up and angle um, more um, useful as like making sure that your hair is okay and that kind of thing. Uh, maybe your, on. your lipstick, yeah, your little eyeshadow, and you know make sure you're looking you're looking good. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's really true, and I don't think that it was one of those things where they forgot about it. I think that was actually a purposeful design. I think a lot of times you have to be careful about the shielding of all the electronics and, and how they affect the uh, standby compass. I mean, I'm thinking, and uh, that's maybe why they stuck it back there. I don't know. I don't know what really the truth is regarding that. That's uh, definitely probably one of the biggest quirks. The other one I'm going to mention, then we can go on to everybody else here, um, is the fact that the DC-9 and all of its variants 
um, have, with the exception of the elevator on some of the models, uh, but the Mad Dog itself, the elevator, the um, the ailerons, the um, rudder. You know, the rudder is usually powered though, but the elevators and the ailerons um, have um, cables. I mean, literally not electrical cables, but steel cables that run from the controls in the cockpit all the way back and out onto the wings for the ailerons. And they're connected to uh, control tabs, they're called. And so at the end of the uh, you know, we've heard of trim tabs, and there are trim tabs as well. But in addition to trim tabs on these ailerons, there are control tabs, and they're on the trailing edge of the ailerons. And when you move uh, left or right on the, you know, turn the uh, yoke one one direction or another, you're actually moving the cable through a whole bunch of pulleys and everything else, and it's connected to that control tab on the aileron. So you're actually aerodynamically flying the aileron. So you, the, the control tab moves and then it has an effect on the aileron and that moves. And then of course the aileron connected to the wing actually creates the bank on the airplane. I know it's crazy, but it's a, a direct control. There's no, and a lot of people joke around and say, oh yeah, the original flyby wire, although the wire is a big, thick steel, stainless steel cable, really. Um, same thing with the elevator. And I'm, and I'm sure you've heard stories of people talking, and I, and I can tell you mine just quickly. Uh, when I was a 727 flight engineer, which is the, what's, was the starting position at Acme Airlines back in the late 80s for me, um, we were rolling out on uh, the taxiway uh, to the uh, to 2-6 left in front of the big um, Acme hangars. Um, and I'm looking at this airplane ahead of us and it was a, uh, it was a, I think this was a, actually a deep, no, it may have, may have been a mad dog. Um, and I'm looking at the elevators. One of the elevators is down and the other elevator is up. And I'm thinking, wow, what something is wrong with that airplane. And I wasn't sure whether I should say something or not. And so I mentioned it to the first officer and the captain, and they just started laughing. <laughs> I thought, well, what, what's so funny? I mean, that's, that's a serious, that's a serious deal there. And they, and then they explained how the whole system worked. I mean, it's just a little cables going all the way out to the control tab at the very uh, aft part of the, uh, of the elevator surface. And uh, they're not, they're not powered by hydraulics or electrics or anything. It's just aerodynamics that, that be, is being flown. Um, there is a system that actually will kick in in an extreme situation to uh, give some hydraulic power to move the elevator um, to uh, protect against what do they call it? Deep stall. Uh, T-tail aircraft have this uh, weakness. And if you uh, exceed the angle of attack too much, uh, you, you could blank out the uh, the elevator and the stabilizer in the back of the airplane. And uh, that's there to kind of help give you the extra added oomph to get that thing to move so you have a chance to get out of a deep stall. Although usually if you get yourself in a deep stall and in a, on a, a T-tail aircraft, uh, you're, you're in bad poo-poo at that point. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, but oh, the thing that, and the reason why I mentioned this whole cable 
fly-by-wire thing is that that's one of the, at first it was one of the weirdest things I, and the thing, one of the things I just didn't like at all about it until I got used to it. And my brain started getting synced up with the whole fly-by actually, you know, m- complete manual control of the control surfaces. And then I loved it. I mean, I was, I was thinking that was one of the best things about this airplane is that you can actually feel when you're flying through the air, you can actually feel what the aerodynamic loads are on the control surfaces. And most airplanes, if they're controlled by hydraulics or whatever, uh, they're, the actual control surfaces, they use a complicated um, a system, a complex system of simulating uh, feel. Uh, now, I know this doesn't apply to the Airbus, but uh, to a traditionally um, controlled airplane, uh, there's there are systems to kind of give you that feel. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm sure that Steph and your uh, Twin Otter or Caravan, I mean, those are all actual kind of like the mad dog. But in, in airliner transport category class airplanes, it's kind of unusual to have a system like that. So that is all I'm going to say. Now on to you. Who? Go on, Steph. Oh, I was going to say quirky airplanes. I I love the Twin Otter for being quirky in a lot of its setup. Um, I think most mm. noticeably to yeah to people is that when you uh, get into the flight deck area, there's all the flight controls are in the center up top, not down like on a pedestal. So you have your power, your prop, your fuel, con- everything's up. Up high. I thought you only had that in airplanes that have like floats, you know, that it's land more common on, on water. Float. Yeah, stuff. float planes. Um, but the yeah. Twin Otter is commonly on floats. So well, a lot of times true. in the um, Caribbean and in the Maldives. Is it a high wing, low wing thing? So actually, the it's an easier cable run to it, sure, just take it, it from yeah, the ceiling the things I've, to a high wing. You know, if you kind of just try to search around in Google and ask why they designed it that way, yes, it does make for a straight run for. Um, all of those control cables to the um, uh, to uh, the engine. Then why don't we have the yoke up there too? <laughs> well, the other part of it too is the way they designed the yoke. Um, for both the Good left question. and right seat, the it's off of a center um, pedestal basically. Like they're both connected to the same um, control in the center, and then it splits off to the right and left side with the. Um, so that takes up a lot of space. Just. Uh, down low where they would normally, you know, we might normally have those controls. And then the other quirky thing I've talked about before is the nose wheel um, steering is via a tiller that's on the left side um, yoke, basically. So as yeah, you're weird. manipulating your <laughs> your throttle, your power controls here and trying to steer here and it's, yeah, it's kind of like pat your head and rub your tummy and it, it all works out. So, um Maybe that guy in the DHL 757 was a former Twin Otter guy, and Maybe. he was trying to steer. I don't know. Just steer kidding. with a yoke mounted. <laughs> so, um, I mean, those things are, are the things that everybody asks about when they climb into a Twin Otter and they go, "What's what's going on there? That's odd." But um, is it is that mainly because it's uh, the Canadians' design? I think it's I think it's thing? very much Canadian. Uh, design features they just wanted to be a little different i don't know yeah um but it's a very i mean it makes the twin otter very endearing and and um it stands out and it's unique so for sure there's not that much quirky about the caravan it's basically a big 182 very conventional very straightforward so 
Nick? Uh, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Because uh, there's some odd oddities uh, around. Um, the Phantom, um, our Phantom, the version we flew, didn't have a handbrake. And I'm not kidding. When you're doing a compass swing, which can take like an hour, an hour and a half, and you're just taxing the airplane around and around in circles, uh, not having a handbrake is an absolute killer because you just have to put pressure on your toes all the time and it your muscles seize up. And it didn't have a battery either, so you always needed a ground car to start it, which was a pain in the backside. The tornado was the worst, though. Uh, it had, <clears throat> which I felt, a completely ludicrous l logic with the engines. If you removed all the external power to the FADAC, which controlled the engines, uh, they would accelerate to f uncontrolled to absolute maximum speed, and then the engine would disintegrate. And i tell you why this is such a stupid idea. Because when you're shutting the airplane down, you go, uh, blah, 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 you should turn all the stuff off. And then the last things you do would be sh shut down the HP fuel cocks and you sit there and watch the um, uh, RPMs wind down. Uh, and then the only thing left to do would turn the batteries off and climb out. Now, it happened a number of times. If you turn those batteries off too early, the engine had enough speed to relight, accelerate to full power and disintegrate. And at that point, the entire apron would be covered with molten metal as the engines wound up to full power. All the blades melted and they all fired out the back of the engine, which was a completely ludicrous system That's just because you turned the batteries off a little bit early. Uh, and the engine still had enough uh, fuel and uh, heat to keep running. That's absolutely uh, terrifying. But there was no other way to cut off the fuel. You didn't have like an emergency, like you'd have to. Well, you turn the HP cocks off, off, but yeah. there was enough fuel in the still system in okay. to accelerate it up to destruction. So that was that was nuts. And uh, I have to say, I used to laugh at the 340, uh, the A340, when we first got them and climbed in. Uh, because the um, the computers that did most of the flight controls, etc., were old 286s and 386s. Now, we're into Intel and, uh, you know, all the different com um, uh, CPUs that run these computers. These were, this was an ancient computer design, but Airbus decided they were going to use a really well-tested and solid computer. So we had these really old, slow computers, and it used to have floppy disk drives. In fact, even the 600 years later when we climbed in, had a three-and-a-quarter floppy disk drive to uh, upgrade the software in it. And, uh, you know, you never saw it in a real computer, but yet you climb in and there were the engineers with loads and loads of floppies feeding them one in after the other into upgrade the software, which I thought was hilarious. Crazy. Absolutely. All right, Liz, what about you? What's your what's the quirkiest and craziest trip? Oh, never mind. Okay, she's not even gonna comment. That wasn't even <laughs> worth a the comment. There's just she's silence. There. There's nothing. Yeah, I don't hear anything. Nothing. Yeah, she is. Oh she is? Okay. She's still there, but Sorry, we're not I, here. I'm, 
Um, KFC is in the chat room, and it's 7 a.m. where he is. Oh, it's 7 a.m. KFC, Make Good Winglets, is in the chat room. It's 7 a.m. So, hey, it's a nice, uh, decent hey, time of the day. Get to work now. Yeah. yeah, but it's been three. He's been up for three. But hours. he's been up for <laughs> several hours. I mean, that's not that unusual. Crazy. Is it? Yeah, that's dedication or oh, craziness indeed. or both. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, really, really good feedback. Thanks. Very uh, really great question. And uh, yeah, um, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna just do one more, and then we're gonna call it a day. Wrap this baby. Up. And uh, do you guys have any objection to me doing number nine? From Sean. Do not. Okay. I'm good this with is uh, from Sean. We are uh, plane spotting over the weekend after dark and noticed there wasn't or there doesn't seem to be any standard when it comes to airlines and usage of aircraft lighting on the ground. I'm curious as uh, to how you handle it and what company policies are, if any. Uh, this is so, these are some of the things that he noticed while the aircraft were on the taxiway. All aircraft had beacons on, yeah, which is a requirement. Anytime you have a an engine running or about to start, uh, they want you to have the beacons on. Uh, the rotating beacons usually they're I guess they're red. I'm not sure there are any other colors for the rotating beacon, but red. Um, most had position lights on. I'm thinking they all should. Uh, Southwest always had logo lights on, and uh, that's a carrier-specific thing, I think. Uh, some carriers only put taxi lights on when in motion. Some leave them on the entire time they're on the taxiway. Uh, I'm going to handle each one of these as, as we go through, I think, because I'm going to forget. Um, so, um, Beacon's on. We covered that one. Um, that's um, Or anytime the airplane's actually going to be in motion, you don't you've got if you've got one broken, that's still acceptable, isn't it? Uh, oh, I think so. You only yeah. need one beacon to be legal. Is that right? I'm yes. trying to remember. I think we in our minimum equipment list, uh, it l- allows us to have uh, just one operator. Yep. Yep. But um, usually there's like one on top, one on the bottom, maybe more. Yeah. Um, we generally uh, just have but, one. Uh, <laughs> just one for yeah. you. Okay. So when it goes out, then you're. Out of luck. Strobes. Yeah, yeah RMEL used to allow strobes instead of beacons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both broken. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm one of the I other. think I'm. Am I breaking up? No. No. All good. Okay, because everybody's freezing but me. <laughs> so it's keep talking. Guiding. We're hearing keep going, you. Keep going. Okay. Well, that's weird. Okay. Um, the uh, let's see. Most had position lights on. Again, I think that's a requirement for the aircraft under power. It's supposed to have position lights oh, on. Oh, well, we're talking about daylight. Dark, yeah, and yeah. If, if it's after dark, your nav lights should be on. Yeah, indeed, it's a yeah. it's a legal requirement, yes. and you you cannot fly without all three. You know, red, green, and white. white position lights serviceable after end of civil twilight yes or something civil like that. twilight to civil i screw up the actual civil. um terminology anyway, but. so that's one of the very few legal lights you're required but that that is a by law mm-hmm. and they're not very bright they don't have to be very bright they're surprising can be surprisingly dim and still be legal sort of like pilots 
Sorry, you wouldn't have heard that. That was was great. Great comment there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Southwest always had logo lights on. Well, um, it it, again that that's one of those where it's an option when you order the airplane uh, to have lights there, usually mounted on the on the ends of the the wingtips, pointed back toward the tail of the aircraft, which is usually what they're. The, where the big logo is, and they want you to, you know, advertise your your company's logo when you're out there. And uh, I've I've flown many of my, most of the airplanes I've flown in my career didn't even have logo lights, but the uh, the Mad Dog and the Seven One Seven do. And uh, over my <laughs> what a couple of decades flying um, the uh, DC Nine variants, uh, company policy has changed as far as to turn them on or not to turn them on or when to turn them on. And uh, I think the the latest guidance, and it's been this way for a, a little while now, is just always have them on. Even if it's daylight, just leave them on. So they're always supposed to be on. You never know when an eclipse is going to happen. But good point, Liz. Um, let's yeah. see. Uh, subcarrier. Uh, Gr- yeah, is right. On the Airbus, those logo lights come on with your nav lights. Uh, but having said oh. that, on the 340s, they were always going to be broken. I mean, they were forever f- failing, so they were always written up. Oh, and UH Blackhawk is making the point. Logo lights are all also really, uh, really help other pilots see the airplane on the ground. Yeah, you get to see when your wingtip is about to hit there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, when but, but they um, also help on a... Yeah, they help on American airports because, you know, someone in JFK will say, um, you know, uh, follow the third southwest. And unless they have got their logo lights on, it's night. You can't tell what company they are. (laughs) Good point. Yeah. Can't see what color of the paint is. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Some carriers only put taxi lights on when in motion. Some leave them on the entire time they're on the taxiway. I think, and this is one of those I think more of a technique than it's not a, it's not a legal requirement. Uh, but I think uh, most airlines here in the U S at least, uh, we turn them on when we're moving and when we're not moving, we turn them off. If we remember to turn them off, I'm thinking that probably why you saw some of them leaving them on the entire time they're on the taxiway is they just forgotten to turn them off. Um, that's, I'm we, just we turned them that. on when we were pointing at, uh, and an- another airline's cockpit, and then we turn them off again. <laughs> otherwise, now that's when you turn them all the lights on. <laughs> you're that you're that vehicle, that car yeah. that comes up behind someone you're else, stopped and hits the brights so that it. That's me. Yeah, that's me. I, I do have to say, you know, and and everybody already knows this who have been listening to the show any period of time that I tend to like to be expeditious with my taxiing and uh you know inevitably i get behind somebody and i'm thinking oh they must just be like brand new they've never <laughs> you know, like never flown this airplane and they're just creeping along and i've been known to like on that um the victory loop Maybe. you know that i don't know if you yeah, uh, you've never you done that loop where you go down yeah. and around uh, the end of the runway, um, and and somebody's only going like five knots or something like that. It just I I turn all my if it's dark, I turn all my <laughs> lights on. 
<laughs> okay, there's somebody right behind you. Would you please uh, expedite your work? taxi? Does uh, work? Well, about half the time it works and half the time it just makes them go slower. So, um, yeah, not so much. I was going to mention uh, p position lights again because uh, most aircraft have got their white lights on the tail mm -hmm. except for a lot of the Boeings, and they've stuck them out on the wingtips. So when you're creeping along a taxiway, you know, all of a sudden you'll spot this gloomy shape as in your taxi light lights. How do you go, oh, my God, there's a damned airplane out there because the white lights are way out left and right. Nearly mm -hmm. mm -hmm. run into a few doing that. Oh, you're thinking that they're just like close together on the tail? Well, no, no, I just didn't uh, see them because they're right at you. Uh, uh, the uh, big, big airplane, they're out on the peripheral. I mean, they're like 100 feet yeah. left and 100 Wide feet right. Vision. Gotcha, yeah. Um, let's see, regarding the, uh, <laughs> spirit airlines didn't bother. Beacon was the only light they bothered to have on while on the taxiway. <laughs> they're saving money. <laughs> Why do you think they're so cheap? Low cost you know? carrier. They're yeah. saving that electricity. Um, even when they were in motion, they finally turned position strobes, taxi lights on when they lined up on the runway. Uh, one aircraft did turn on their strobes while at the hold short line, and another aircraft was coming in. Uh, you know, some of these airplanes, the 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 way the strobes come on uh, are dependent upon like a connection to another lighting um, system. So, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure what to say about that one. Um, I don't think they probably did it on purpose, then, or maybe they have a policy that says when you're Number one for takeoff, turn the strobes on. I don't know. I don't usually see that uh, well, very we, often. We actually. never did it when we were close to other airplanes because they're damn bright and it just oh, kills yeah. your Blinding. night vision. Yeah, you're talking so, about the position uh, lights being kind of dim, but the uh, the strobes are quite bright. Yeah. Yeah. Strobes are yeah. hugely bright. Uh, on the Airbus, the, the strobes automatically came on uh, as you you lifted off. Uh, after a few incidents of um, aircraft uh, not being seen on the ground, we would always turn them on as we pulled onto the runway. So, you know, that was tough. Gotcha. Motel 6, uh, according to Tim Van Ramp, Motel 6 Airlines always leaves a light on for you. <laughs> so you have to know the Motel 6 commercial. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Tom, what's Tom the guy's? Bodette. Tom Bodette. I'm Tom Bodette from Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on for you. Well, is that, so the cool. room fills up with mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we have screens over here. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. And the Motel 6 never has a hole in its screens. Never. No. No. <laughs> okay. Well, that was fun. Okay, this is perfect um, timing. That's going to be it for today's episode. Lots of oh, great feedback still remaining and a couple of news items we didn't get to, but we're going to push those on to the next one. Uh, so that that's it for Flight uh, 590. You know, gosh, 10 more and we're going to be already that's at it? 600. Wow. Oh, good Lord. Um, yeah, I know. Um, so let's see. We're going to tell you about our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, lots of good stuff there where you can learn about the crew and the community and the community calendar. And we have merchandise and we have the library. Our librarian, Tiffany, takes care of that for us. Information about the coffee fund, um, plain tales, more information about that as well. 
And uh, what else? What did I miss? code for feedback. Oh, and uh, right there, if you want to send us some feedback, it's feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Or you can just point your your phone's camera at the uh, QR code. And it should open up the email and uh, already have works. it addressed to us. Excellent. And, um, yeah, uh, so there's that for feedback. And then we're also on social media. Your way to figure out what we're planning as far as when we're going to record and when the episodes are out and all that interesting stuff. So Steph's going to tell us about that. Yes, I was waiting to see, but I was pretty sure we were going to start with Facebook. That's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, plenty of good stuff being posted there from the community, sometimes the crew, things happening in the world of aviation. Over on X slash Twitter slash Twixter slash whatever, uh, we're at APG crew and you'll find our individual Twitter handles, X handles, handles, whatever pinned to the top of that page yeah. also on instagram apg crew that's where you can find captain nick's fantastic uh show artwork and then we were wondering um when uh, earlier in the show uh after getting to know you in the coffee fund and whatnot jeff uh had a captain jeff had a brief physiologic break if um halal had already made his way into the bathroom to uh you know prepare to tell us about slack so yeah, I told him he had to leave, and he's been out in the hall the whole time. Pacing, uh, Poor guy. Forgot, forgot to have him come back in. I think so. Well, maybe he did come back in. Let me uh, see if I can open up the uh, microphone, my hidden microphone, in the in the bathroom. Don't ask questions. Hello, scary. hello. Can you tell us about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. We love you anyway. Come on over here and tell us all about it. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you very much, Hillel. Fire in the hole. Oh, no. Thanks for the warning. Shut Always that a very fan on. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is that where uh, the APG so fans hang out? I didn't know that. <laughs> on Slack. Yeah, well, there's, yeah. It's, Slack. it's kind of like a, yeah, yeah. It depends on what your definition of fan is, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, so all right. They got uh, big let's see. What else? Oh, you know what else? We have to thank, or not have to. Well, no, I have to thank. Liz, yes, our producer. Yes, you do. Because <laughs> if I forget, let me tell you, it's uh, it's always a it's a, always a bad well, thing. Hell to pay. You know. Ow! Sorry. I prom- Ow! Sorry. Well done, Liz. I won't. I won't do it again. <laughs> that was great. Thanks for staying up late, Nick, and thanks for getting home early, Steffi. That's right. Yeah. And you too, Jeff. And oh, thanks. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah. what else? I don't know what I'm. A, I'm at a loss for words, which is like unheard of, really. You're uh, tired. But I just 
I, I am tired. I want to thank all of our, um, our, our uh, what do you call them? Uh, the people that are always there for you. The, our listeners, the, <laughs> the live, listeners, live chat, the, oh, yeah. chat, the chat room, the, the live, the chat room people. What are you the know? The, who are the, here uh, hanging out with us. Those crazy people in the chat room. And ideas yeah. And bantering. Yeah. Tim, Fred. Yes, and uh, they they You're are age. great people, most of them anyway. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, Elspeth Lotto them, just uh, landed in Melbourne. He's just finished a long oh, flight, so he's tired. Oh wow! Yeah, well, he was that's giving that's us some information about the A380 and logo lights and other lights and all that kind of stuff. Keep so, talking, uh, Jeff. He needs to get some these. sleep. Keep talking. He needs uh, to get some sleep. <laughs> All right, um, <laughs> let's uh, go ahead and sign off, and I uh, hope that we'll see you again here with us next week. And until then, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and talents, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. All the best, everybody. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline not a guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline